Hello, and welcome back to Waypoint 101, where Waypoint and its contributors and friends chat in detail about classic games or just games that we're strangely hung up on. For today, I'm your host, Rob Zachney, and today I'm joined by Patrick Klapik. I didn't unmute myself because I was... <laughs> I was frantically trying to find an issue of Computer Gaming World that I'd pulled up before, and then I thought I'd clicked on me. Anyway, I'm here, and I'm still finding that issue. Don't worry. Keep oh, going. yeah. CGW Museum, National Treasure. Uh, Renata Price. Howdy, gamers. I'm trying to stop our- saying... Mm. Continue. Yeah. Continue. Look, it's we're all works in progress. <laughs> and our producer, Ricardo Contreras. Hello. Hello. So today, as threatened slash promised, we're tackling Sid Meier's <laughs> Gettysburg, the Civil War war game from 1997. Uh, so we've had a few streams on it. Uh, we've been I've been playing a bunch. Uh, we've also been checking out some other games from the period and things that have been have been sort of come out subsequently to Sid Meier's Gettysburg. But uh I thought I'd throw it open to the floor a little bit. I'm, genuinely, like I, my feelings will not be hurt if you didn't get on with it. I'm just honestly curious what people made of this, and if there's anything about about it that like sort of surprised you or disappointed you uh, as you as you sort of came to terms with it. I feel like wish I volunteer as tribute, Cato, because you're the most recent. Yeah. I, we've, I have read a draft of Rob's essay in which mm-hmm. a beginning of it is struggling with his. Kind of like a game that he loves a lot, has spent a lot of time talking with people that also understand it, and then struggling to communicate, like, how to parse it. And he, like, I think Rob has gone through that process with, with all of us, and you're yeah. the last one, the, the last that, one. that did that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm curious. I'm, I don't know. I'm curious for you where, I don't know, where, where that game landed with you, um, given you're the last person to kind of touch it. You know, I think it's, I think it's really interesting because... Well, like the like strategy games that I used to play the most were like RTSs, the like StarCraft Command and Conquer style ones where uh, there isn't really much to talk about as far as uh, like group, like formations and stuff. Like it doesn't mm-hmm. take it takes a very different view of warfare uh, in general in, in those. It's more about just not it's a numbers game, right? Like uh where this one feels like uh at certain points in ways that were a little bit as you spoke to in your in your essay a little more obfuscated for people who don't know like the specific history of Gettysburg um were like one regiment that happens to be like just godly because you know like they have a special name and everything uh will hold out uh over like over a longer period of time against many, many more enemies than like a rookie regiment or whatever. And at a glance, that is kind of hard to parse when you're looking, you'd have to like, you know, you have yeah. to like select individual units to like really get like the lay of the land. And then like, if you're trying to look at, you know, the the battle as it like, you know, unfolds over a larger landscape, it becomes infinitely harder to track like, which unit was that one? Was that the good one, or are those just like <laughs> those the people? Well, it's almost like they all got their Madden ratings, right? <laughs> yeah. Is like, yeah, they play the same position, but also like this one's a ninety nine, right? And right. like, but you, but it also like uh, you, you could sort of see it. it they'll they will like rate the regiments, and they have different like morale bars. But yeah, it very much is like 
making the assumption that like you know what the latest Madden ratings are right. on all these brigades You're and regiments. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, you know these guys are good. I don't need to tell you. And maybe maybe you do. Another thing that I feel like is very interesting about the scenario design compared to like our other RTS scenario design is that you can be booked to lose, right? Most of the time, if you're going into a campaign scenario in, uh, you know, the ones I mentioned before, the other kind, like the more modern ones, uh, it's likely that it's set up for you to be able to win because it's a campaign. Like you have to move on to the next story mission or whatever. Um, where this one is like, no, sometimes depending on which side you're win- you're you're playing, and like you you're most likely to actually get routed, but then you can continue, right? It's not like right locked out of like because you know scenarios are trying to tell a story that is like tied together in like a you know you're the heroes like fighting through whatever um, of of like this story. Uh, this one's very much just like no, we're telling we're telling history here. And like you can change the way history kind of plays out a little bit, but ultimately you're just gonna move on to the next thing that we know happened. Or when, when you lose, you get a game over screen. It's like like you know, go be better. As <laughs> but even at to, the bottom you know, of the game over or whatever, it says like next scenario. Like you can just okay, well that was a wash, but here's what happened next uh, in real life. Like Ren. One of my favorite things is uh, when I was playing this game was actually reaching out to Rob. Uh, I did this for some of the some of the missions, not all the scenarios I played, but some of the scenarios I played, I would reach out to Rob to be like, all right, who was booked to win this fight? Because it was this, because I, I don't have the, it's also kind of hard to, the way that the scenarios are listed in this game requires mm-hmm. a deep awareness of how the actual Civil War battles played out to be able to, for example, find the information about a particular engagement. So for example, if I was looking at... Um, if I was trying to find how an, how a battle went historically as opposed to how it went in game, I would have to be like, okay, who were the generals here? Where was it fought? What day was it fought on? And by I, if I have all of that information, I might be able to figure out the battle that the game is approximating and then figure out who was booked to win or lose. Instead, I kind of just asked Rob because I trusted Rob to know who was booked to win or lose uh, given scenarios. And it actually was one of the things I found really interesting about the game. And one of the things that I think led to not confusion, but I think like there was there was an initial where Rob was like, oh, damn, Ren, Ren has a good handle on this game because there's a specific battle which you are 100% booked to lose as the Union, which I happened to beat through a sheer fluke the first time I played. And I was like, oh, yeah, is this supposed to are you supposed to be able to like, is this supposed to be an easy dub? And Rob was like, no, it's not supposed to be an easy dub. How the <laughs> fuck did you do that? And I had no idea that was the case. And so then I went into... um the stream being like, oh, let me just use the tactics that I used when I was playing by myself because I didn't actually understand the systems at play because I just do do not have the knowledge required to be able to read the specific nuances of aspects of the Battle of Gettysburg that I had to to be able to win in anything more than a fluke uh, or a low difficulty scenario uh, or a scenario, a hard scenario played on low difficulty. Patrick, I'm curious uh, what your encounters with this were like. Uh, all right. Well, I did not enjoy playing this game, mm-hmm. but um, part of what I found so interesting about it was like, okay, so I mentioned this computer gaming world uh, uh issue. I was a PC gamer person, not a computer gaming world person. But um, so uh, this is the cover. Um, I will tweet about this when this podcast goes. This is the cover for the uh, what is it listed here? The does it say which month? January nineteen ninety eight, which is the issue in which Gettysburg. 
is reviewed in computer gaming world, which includes a review I just want to point out. If you if you Google the cgwmuseum.org, you can pull up. Here, I'll give you the actual PDF if you want to like scroll through it. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I have screenshots, but I will I will if you want to scroll through it. This issue of the magazine includes a fallout of the a review of the original Fallout by Jeff Green. It fucking rules. It's so much fun to, to scroll through. But if you and you can scroll through this if you want if you go through PDF, but I pulled out screenshots. The first screenshots you get from this issue, the ads for the games that they are selling to you. One, Total Annihilation, a game mm-hmm. most famous for 3D terrain development and also specifically that we will give you 300 units and we're going to keep adding units to this game, not because they're distinctive, but because you know what would be cool? More units you could have in this game. <laughs> um, the, the advertising you have after that is StarCraft, a game that is not out yet mm-hmm. at the time. The the uh the timeline at at this period when this game comes out and gets reviewed, um, Warcraft the original is out in ninety four, Command and Conquer the original is out in ninety five, Red Alert is out in ninety six, uh, Warcraft two is also out in ninety five, um, Total Annihilation is ninety seven, Age of Empires is ninety seven, Gettysburg is ninety seven, and then Starcraft is ninety seven. And so like the magazine in which you read the review of Gettysburg. Gettysburg is like all the way at the bottom, noted as important, good game, but is just surrounded by my entire experience with strategy games, which is specifically amass a bunch of units, collect them in a rectangle or a square, depending on how you've aligned them or how they've come out of the factory, throw them together, and probably you should just build more tanks. Um, uh, <laughs> because I was obsessed with Command & Conquer and Warcraft. Like, my entire experience with strategy games prior to dropping off PCs and then coming back into strategy because of, of, of uh, you know, uh, <laughs> ironically, uh, you know, Firaxis, like, rebooting XCOM and making it more appealing to the masses while, I think, not losing entirely of its soul along the way. And so my entire... I, I did not think of strategy and tactics in, in when I played my strategy games. I just said, okay, well, if I'm losing, I'll just like build some more shit and like we'll just keep, we'll just keep moseying along. And mm-hmm. so running into a game like Gettysburg in which my entire design language understanding of like what it even means to play a strategy game is the complete opposite of like what Gettysburg presents, which is, um, losing is part of it. Um, there is no resource management or the, the, how we're doing resources are like pre-allocated based on a scenario rather than base building. Like if you've lost a skirmish, it's okay. Like you can recover. And that is entirely how I engage with these types of games. I was obsessed with like this specific era of the RTS before I became sort of a console person again, like the, is like the Dreamcast comes out, um, at this part of the nineties. And so Gettysburg was like really fascinating to play confirms that I'm both not good at and don't like these types of games, but was like really interesting to run into because I constantly saw these and played like demo versions of it on like the PC gamer demo disc, like, cause they was just be, be thrown on. So it was in parallel with my own experience. I just always bounced off them and then just went to like the new hot, uh, RTS. It sounds like much like Kato did, um, um, at that time. I think Patrick, I'm I'm kind of in a similar place to you, but in a very different direction. Where like I I really like tactics, I really like strategy. But the thing about Gettysburg is it operates on a time scale that I am not built for. <laughs> the time scale that Gettysburg, the game, operates on over the course of like a single battle, just 
does not read to me because it is about monitoring the specific condition of a specific of all of your units over the course of like 50 minutes and yeah. knowing, okay, cool. I can see this unit is about to, like, and this is something that I got used to as I played more. Cause I have played more in the days since I did eventually get used to the fact like, okay, cool. I'm going to check on my crack units. Oh shit. They're losing morale. Let's have them fall back. Let's have a slightly weaker unit with a lot of support, move up to the front while these folks kind of rally and get their morale back. I'm used to big swings in my strategy games and in my tactics games, right? I'm used to, you know, it, for example, when I was playing like uh, Total War with Rob, I am, I am, a, I love, I love a good flank. I love a good flank that just decimates a group of units like that. And generally, your flanks don't decimate a group of units like that in Gettysburg. They'll reduce their morale very quickly, and that might make them uh, retreat or might make them fall back. But the thing that was difficult for me to read is when units were out of the fight, right? And Or when, you know, a specific, like, interaction had actually come out in my favor or not. Because uh, a lot of the, in a way that I almost like, uh, a lot of the information about the current state of your enemy completely obfuscated to you. You do not know their morale. You have no idea what their morale is. You have no idea the kind of troops you're fighting. Uh, you only know maybe their name. Uh, I think you can see the names of enemy units, but you cannot see if they're crack troops and you cannot see their current morale rating. Which <laughs> also I think like is, the, the, the kill, like for lack of a better term, like the, the kill death ratio is not one to one, right? It's all right. the strategy games that I play. I'm used to being like, right. I have 10 tanks, you have 10 tanks. Like, let's see how this plays out. And in Gettysburg, it's like a little more, uh, it's like representative of like what the fight is, but it is not like, oh, three troops have gone down. Or like, I found it hard to parse that part of it. And that is a, a part of the battle in which you have to be paying attention to the specific systems that it's operating on, like the morale uh, thing that uh, I found hard to parse. Part of that is just history and like distance from a game and like what, what it was developed. But um it's all just operating differently. Um, and so I just, it took me a long time to adjust to even what are you asking me to do? The game is also like, sometimes things just aren't happening. There's nothing for you to do. You're just supposed to watch it play out, which is again, like counter to an RTS is similar to a shooter in which you are always doing something. There is always something for you to micromanage. And there's a micromanaging here. It's just, I don't know. It's just in a different scale than than what I was used to, um, and operates on a different time scale it's as well. The, and yeah, it's on the complete opposite end of the APM scale, right? Like <laughs> APM's hella low uh, during it, like it's like it spikes though, right? Like there are moments yes. where you're like, oh shit, I gotta re, I gotta reorganize, and like your APM is maybe as high as like a regular RTS, and then things stop because the lines have formed, and you have to just like watch it play out for a bit, you know. Yeah, I also think that the other thing I'm about it with the morale system that I find really interesting is the way in which the morale system encourages certain ways of thinking. I mean, the morale system is the product of certain ways of thinking specifically about the Civil War. And this, like, Rob touches on this in his essay, where, like, this is a game that emerges from the 1990s. This is me borrowing things from Rob real quick, so I just want to be yeah. really clear. Um, this is a game that emerges from the 1990s at the peak of Civil War reenactment culture and at the peak of, like, the Civil War returning to the American cultural imagination. There are kind of two peaks. There's um, first in like the 1960s, uh, when a bunch of Confederate uh, statues, which are dog shit, by the way, just the worst made fucking statues you've ever seen, uh, start showing up across the entire South. And even in, I believe, I could be wrong, but some places in the North, just like Confederate monuments are like showing up everywhere as part of a, as part of basically a astroturfing campaign by the American right. Um, 
fucking everywhere confederate monuments start, start popping up mass produced brass statues which are honestly fucking terrible uh, that's the first spike is in the 1960s well the second spike there's also spikes in the yeah. 1920s there's big spikes of nationalism in the country leads to big spikes of civil war um, reenactment culture but the most recent one was in the 1990s where civil war reenactment starts existing in the cultural imagination again uh both in terms of like you know films about the civil war but also like Civil War reenactment exists in the cultural imagination in the 1990s, where, like, you know, people are thinking about Civil War reenactors as, like, a joke or a punchline in a movie, right? This is an extant thing that exists. And part of that imagination is, like, the idea of the put-upon unit that has impossibly high morale, despite being extremely outnumbered in a very particular setting and that is what this game is trying to recreate and once i realized that this game is trying to recreate the like put upon unit that is like trying to fend off like an entire like army of troops and is like the one often confederate unit who is standing there against all odds and that morale system is designed to replicate that a lot of the things that the game wanted me to do in terms of play started making sense and started being like okay cool the morale is the core of this game because crippling morale and breaking morale is the core of the way that people think about um, the American South uh, and war in the American South. There's a couple things I will interject there. Um, so I will, I will say like, for instance, stuff like the iron brigade and such, like a huge part of like myth making, there is the, there's the greater lost cause myth, which is that the South itself was making the entire thing was a gallant stand mm-hmm. against vast Oz. The entire war on a strategic level level was uh, David versus Goliath. Um, I would say in terms of like, it's an, it's an odd thing, but a lot of like the most famous stands uh, in the civil war are union troops uh, sort of managing to uh, stick in place as the mm-hmm. con- Confederates tend to mob them. Uh, this is how the Iron Brigade gets its name. The other thing I would say, this tends to get a little bit forgotten, I think, because like the the lost cause myth um, can sort of, it is such a blinding distortion of history that it's easy to sort of forget that like, there's also a lot of um, really like pro-union uh, like historiography in the 60s as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Bruce Catton was a really famous historian at this point. Um, it's weird to he's writing the perspective of when he was a kid, the Civil War veterans were still there. Um, that's where his interest is sparked as he remembers being a little kid in like the 30s in like Michigan or something. And like the old men, some of them were guys who had like fought at Gettysburg and such and that, that stuck with him. Um, and so like in the sixties, there's, I think like there's like sixties is another big military history period uh, in terms of like interest, but the lost cause is also getting more deeply entrenched in that period. Um, and that tends to be the stuff that uh, looms a bit larger because it really begins cementing like, Robert Lee and the Confederates as like, you know, gallant American heroes. Yeah. By the way, Rob, I, I actually think just for a, a bit of, people would probably appreciate this context. Could you give your definite, like the definition that you're using of the lost cause here? Cause mm. I feel like we, we jumped into using it pretty quickly and I think it's worth point, like putting in very concrete terms, what specifically the lost cause refers to. Yeah. Uh, so 
Lost Cause predominantly is, uh, first of all, it's a deception of what the cause of the Civil War was. Uh, so the Lost Cause myth is, you know, it rests on a few pillars. Uh, one is that the the cause that was lost was one of like Southern independence and Southern cultural independence uh, from the North that more than the war being about slavery, uh, the South was an independent nation that happened to hold slaves, but was mostly seceding because they no longer wished to be part of uh, the union and uh, it's increasing domination by Northern interests. And that's the real root cause of the civil war. This has been this is this was a really popular view of the history. It's pretty it's it's pretty well discredited and exploded at this point because the primary sources are all very clear about why uh, the southern states seceded when Lincoln uh, was elected president. It like they 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 were all motivated to ensure that they would be allowed to maintain slavery. Uh, but nevertheless, the lost cause myth is that that is not why they seceded. And then on top of that you kind of have two other really crucial myths to it. One is that uh, the Confederacy's cause was likely doomed from the start, but it was through the valor and gallantry and, and cleverness of their commanders and their troops that they were able to defy the odds heroically for four years um, against overwhelming like union numbers and technology and industrial power. And then kind of the third part of this is that the, the Confederates, but especially some of their like higher ranking leaders are basically American saints uh, that Robert E. Lee is not just a good general, but is a secular saint of like the United States, uh, you know, the quintessential American soldier, a quintessential gentleman, uh, one of the most honorable and decent people who ever lived. And again, this is why it's so important the war not be about slavery in this in this casting, because if you, you know, if you come around to, uh, I think it was Grant's verdict on, on all Confederates, he was like, you know, he, I think he said, you know, I can pay tribute to their courage, even if I think it was, even if I think they were uh, fighting for about the worst cause uh, that people have ever fought for. If you take that verdict, then all that courage doesn't count for anything. All that, you know, gallantry and like none of it counts because the cause is an atrocity. And so you kind of have to decouple it uh, in order to protect the reputations of these uh, people that you want to be heroes, both at, both because gen there's genuine belief that they they are uh, like regional and cultural heroes, uh, but also the Lost Cause myth launders a lot of white supremacy into mainstream discourse. Um, thank you. That was an ex exceptional summary of, of, of the lost cause, which I think is really necessary for discussing and thinking about Gettysburg um, as like a object. Yeah. But I actually, so I did want to get back though, because y'all made some really good points about <laughs> it is like I'm I was taken aback both on the one hand by how fast paced the game is in some ways, but also very much what y'all are talking about. The fact that like, and I, it didn't occur to me again. Cause like, to me, it's like, yeah, this is roughly like how a civil war battle should probably feel, but it didn't occur to me until y'all were laying it out that like the distance between cause and effect 
in this game can be pretty wide that you can do stuff. And unlike in a lot of games where like the minute you put troops out of position or like have a mismatch in units, you immediately see like, wow, that's a hard counter. I just got exploded or those guys were in the wrong place. Uh, you know, they got completely, completely ruined. Uh, this is a game where there's a lot of like, let's see how this plays out. And to me, I'm like, yeah, that all like scanned, but we're like, it, it sounds like y'all were kind of at a loss at times as to like, first of all, what were your choices actually achieving and accomplishing? Uh, and then too, like by what mechanism was some of this playing out? It seems like all that stuff started to get more obscure than readable uh, to y'all. Mm. Uh, Robin, we streamed uh, the game. Um, you, what was the game that you showed me after I had played the one? Real, the, 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 yeah, they had the FMV going all 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 over the place as Kata tried desperately to capture it to share it for the stream. John Tiller's Battleground Gettysburg, uh, right? Part of a five game <laughs> Civil War Battleground series he made. And and if I remember correctly, that was a game that came almost. In terms of depicting Gettysburg, like right before Sid Meier's Gettysburg. Yeah, it was like within a year or two, I think. Um, and what what was, you know, and we're, we're, you know, talking about like, okay, your ability to parse what is in front of you using what you can parse about that to turn into like actionable data to take actions or reactions. I mean, that's a game in which like you're clicking like next, here's some numbers, next, here's some numbers. And it was like, you know, to go from that to how Sid, you know, Sid Meier and, and, and his team of Firaxis to, chose to depict it. It was just fascinating because like, well, of course this is because that one is very much, hey, if you're playing a tabletop game or a version of a tabletop game, like, I mean, you can't do it. It's all going to be raw data because like, how else are you going to advance the game? And then, uh, or the scenario. And then in Sid Meier, it's like, there's a little bit more like, well, you know, like by, by choosing explicitly to hide certain things, whether from, from an artistic or design perspective, it influences what the player does, what the AI does in a way that, um, I don't know. I have to imagine like introduces some, more entertaining randomness towards like the scenario itself relative to like, I don't know if you're just like uh, that, the, the, the other game felt more like you were looking at a spreadsheet that just happened as some visuals accompanying it. Mm-hmm. Uh, can I actually cite something that this made me think about from a New yeah. York times piece that I find really interesting. So this is from a New York times piece from 1998 uh, from the game theory column about uh, Sid Meier's Gettysburg um, that says a book is a tool A map is a tool. Games can be a tool, but they are a curious sort of tool because if they're well-designed, they become ends in themselves. They substitute for the things they're meant to represent. The map becomes the territory. Uh, Here we go. All models make assumptions, but because a computer simulation generates so many solutions, its assumptions are difficult to discern. No, that's, uh, you have to play it 40 different ways before you know what model makers take for granted. It's not as simple as pointing to a passage in a textbook and saying, no, that's not right, and this is why. In a simulation, the past may seem more immediate, more meaningful, and more clear, but the history behind it is complex and opaque. History turns into something like a computerized car, simple to use and impossible to fix. And I think that the thing that, Patrick, you're getting at here is the way in which that obfuscation of the game's basic systems, of the morale system, of how strong units are, of all of this makes the simulation 
more opaque and that the diff the distance between that like spreadsheet style game that is like deeply wargamey and requires perfect information and this is what makes or what marks Gettysburg as like kind of a landmark moment in RTS design and also games about history um and the ways in which like I think it is both a strength of the text or a strength of the of the end result but a weakness to like anyone who's coming to interact with it who doesn't have a background that is able to read that opaqueness well and there's a i was reading uh i was trying to pull up old reviews of the game when it was reviewed at the time and there was uh one from gamezilla these are websites that will probably ring true to rob and i and and kato to some degree um i don't remember tales of yore about gamezilla (laughs) uh Scott Stearns, is that a critic? Is that anyone we still remember, Rob? Is that a byline that means anything anymore? <laughs> no. Um, anyway, they had, they had a good line that I think speaks to what, what, what Ren is saying here, is that uh, Sid Meier's Gettysburg is a groundbreaking historical strategy game, but not because of innovation, rather because of execution. It utilizes the concept of real-time strategy to emphasize the reality of Civil War combat, a chaotic mess directed only by the sheer willpower of the leaders. Um, which I think, in that respect, like speaks i think very well to parts of like gettysburg that hold up really well that may be frustrating to a newcomer are are frustrating if you don't have context for the scenarios but if you forgive those things and approach the game for what it was trying to thematically convey like yeah the fact that we're all like kind of frustrated and don't know what's going on seems to thematically fit with what they were trying to you know actually outlay for like both sides like a lot of you know i am no history buff but like in the reading i've done around this like boy one of the big takeaways is like a lot of things are like random chance and assumptions and people are using like misguided information um and then things just playing out and knowing that and like reading the like design notes and the manual itself like i don't know like all that starts to fit together as like a broader set of puzzle pieces that make the game really thematically make sense where like Absent, like, just, of course, like, the, uh, you know, allowance for, like, UI and UX getting cleaner and more readable over time. For what it was doing at the time, it seems to accomplish that task of, like, yeah, you have some information about what's in front of you, but the lack of information is also, like, Mm -hmm. what it was like to play these scenarios closer to what it's like to probably play them in a, uh, like, war game scenario where it's like, cool, you have all the information, like... That's not that's not usually how this works. So the the added chaos element is, I think, important to make it feel, I don't know, to grant it some tension. I also think one of the things that Rob touches on in in his essay is the fact that, like, the briefings we get are the briefings that people got, but not the briefings that experts would know. So experts know the briefing, right? Experts know the information that the union went into during Pickett's charge, right? They have the information. They know what information both sides have. And so they can approach it in a way that Patrick, you, myself, and Cotto just can't. And I think that's really fascinating. And that is like part of the way in which this game is, is actually very effective from a thematic standpoint is that you only get that information if you play both sides of the battle. You will only know what both sides are coming into if you have gone in previously and have actually like understood the processes of history that are taking place. And I think that's really kind of brilliant. I think the 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 also the difficulties this is not something that we really fully grasped until like I think I was playing with Rob that like he was playing on a harder difficulty obviously and it's like the difficulty also changes like the units on the map and like mm-hmm. what it's displaying which then 
also change how you're thinking about like what is the tension of this map mm-hmm. and what the scenario that it's that it's trying to lay out. Right, and that's the other thing that I find like really really interesting is the fact that like I am generally able to play on higher difficulties in games. Uh, that's just how I like to play games. Uh, I like to, but the the skills that this is asking you to test on higher difficulties are just different skills than difficulty is traditionally associated with. Um, in a way that I find extremely intriguing. So, I also think that like this in particular, and I like I forgot this. Sid Meier games pretty much always had an unusual sort of difficulty curve when it comes to this stuff. Like Sid Meier games ramp up fast. And I would say like 10, like 10 to very quickly almost begin to cheat against you uh, to make things harder. Like I'm thinking about, um, so Sid Meier's pirates, right? Really fun little, like, you know, your little swashbuckling adventure. You control your little ship. You get your little pirate fleet. You dance with the governor's daughter. Uh, you know, you, you trade for, for riches, et cetera. Uh, but by the way, uh, your character is aging. The entire game is structured as a revenge story and your character is aging. And so when the game begins, you're at your fastest in terms of like, um, if you, there's like no input lag basically mm-hmm. when you're giving commands, uh, like particularly in sword fighting. But as your character ages, it begins to ramp up and your character, ju- your character just gets slower. Um, but as you ramp up the difficulty, the enemy characters just get so fucking fast so quickly. Uh, their ships like can turn so tightly, like everything about these games, um, <laughs> tends to ramp up really, really fast in terms of difficulty where like it's, I think we all felt like safe thinking difficulty level, difficulty level three out of four is probably like a decent midpoint. Right. And the answer is no, it's not like difficulty four out of four is let me, let me put, let me say how um in the designer's notes, Brian Reynolds, who was one of the designers on this designer of uh Civ two, um, and also just a notorious, uh, like shark when it comes to strategy games, like, uh, just a scary, good player of, of strategy games. But the way he, the way he puts it, uh, is that, you know, if you think you can clobber this thing at Robert E. Lee level, come looking for me on the net. I need fresh meat. And I don't think he's kidding though. Like well, he's not, he's not, when you read like the, there's like a section <laughs> in the manual about, which also I need to point out, <laughs> they started, this game came out in October. They started writing the manual in May. Um, like this manual is a book. It's a novel. It, That's it is not, so fucking fascinating. Um, and one of the bits that, that is, I forget who's writing yes. this explanation of, of the manuals, uh, uh, evolution is like they wrote it in May because the game is so complex, but also they had to do that. So that they could keep updating it as they were finishing the game, like heading into, you know, whenever a game would go gold in that era, probably like, you know, in September-ish or actually probably earlier because games were finished a lot earlier back in that era. Um, but like they started it months in, in, in ahead of the game being finished. But one of the things they did note was that it was basically the studio versus Brian. And that's how they were like tuning yes. the AI. And so Sid Meier at that, you know, at that stage is still like in the trenches, like programming, like in the nitty gritty. And uh, is, is there manipulating the AI based on what the studio is doing against Brian? 
um, because basically like he is like the big bad, the boss, like the one that everyone is like throwing all of their uh, brain power against. And like, that's how they end up like tuning the game back um, towards like a more generalized audience. That's um, fucking fascinating. And, and believe like if you just, go- if you just Google the Gettysburg manual, it's easy to find a PDF on it. I think it's on like the internet archive um, and some other places. It's, um, it is it is a it is a tome like it is it is the civilization i remember civ a game that i tried to play and failed when it first came out um or it was civ civ 2 i think but like all of those when you played like a super nintendo game yes those were like beautiful gorgeous like colored like 20 to 25 page things that gave you a glimpse of the game on your drive home from the store these are books like these are like giant ass novels and it really does do a really phenomenal job of explaining not just what the game is, but like why they did it Um, in a way that I don't, it almost feels like a companion piece to, to mm-hmm. the game and its goals, as opposed to being what we call a manual, which is like an explanation of like how to play. It's that's true, but there is an argument to be made that loading up some gameplay videos and watching the manual, you may learn more about like how this game works and then like sitting and playing it yourself. Cause the manual does such a tremendous job of explaining how it all operates. It's really clear and well-written. I will say yeah. that. Like yes. it is it very is easy to parse. Yeah. It also has a historical record of the battle, mm-hmm. which is, yes. I would yes. say yes. better than like, if you're trying to be like, Oh, what, how, how is this booked? Just fucking go to the manual because <laughs> yeah, your Wikipedia is, entry will be harder to parse. Exactly. Than the book That's entries. the comparison I was about to make. Cause it's like yeah. so fucking hard to parse. And there's so many like layers of like linkage and so many like in the Wikipedia. These motherfuckers will tell you who showed up when and where and who won for every single scenario in this video yeah. game. Yeah. It's really interesting. Yeah. And that's, and that's kind of the thing is that so many of the scenarios are designed around like a degree of like dramatic irony that we know what the what the characters in the briefing don't and they're they're playing the characters right like they're making yep oh that's a classic mistake that guy makes uh here's here's a misapprehension they're under uh and all of that is like <laughs> it works if you sort of know what the story is here but again if you're looking for actual briefing material like hey what what happens in the scenario uh, I think you're right, Ren. Like, mostly it's going to become clear if you play both sides. Because it's only once you've played both sides that you realize, like, okay, so here are their starting positions. Here are the redeploy. Here are the reinforcement schedules both sides are on. And now I understand this scenario hinges on timing windows. And that's going to be opaque to you at the start. Now, the, the, the kind of cool thing is if you're sort of playing it naively, it is kind of funny to walk into the same traps that the commanders did like there's one scenario uh barlow's knoll uh which is the first day uh defending like the north northeast of the city uh this union division commander just moves too far north he's like i found a good defensible position and kind of misses the fact that like there's a major road leading out of town Mm -hmm. that is now behind his lines but you start the scenario and you're like, this is a pretty good position. Dense woods, artillery with good line of sight. Like, I'm going to shred anything that comes at me. Yeah, the irony here is that nothing's coming at you. It's coming around you. And, like, what you have to do is realize, like, like if you play it naively, you're going to do the same thing that, like, kind of the Union Commander did, which was, like, all right, can't wait till they approach this position. going to kick their ass. And then they just show up behind you and to your right and you're utterly fucked. But once you know what the scenario is, the actual contest is like 
yo, you guys are in deep shit here. You have maybe two minutes to find some way to get out of this like trap before the jaws spring shot. Uh, and then you're just you're just hosed. So get to it. But that's a totally different. That's a totally different mission than what you initially start with, which is like, here's the victory location. Seems good. You're defending it. You hold it. Uh, I guess I just need to, to hold fast here. No, that's not what the story is. And if you knew Gettysburg, you know that. But if you don't, good luck. You'll find out once you play the Confederate side. <laughs> One of the other things here uh, that this kind of touches on with like Barlow's Knoll is is the role that topography plays in this game. And I actually think one of the the difficult things is uh, to read as an outsider is reading the the literal topography. Uh, if you do not use the line of sight mode that your artillery and uh, generals have, you will not have any fucking idea where anyone is because the isometric perspective of this game and the color grading and like the color differentiation made it really hard for me to parse when someone was on the uh, on the top side of a hill or on the sloped side of a hill fighting upwards. And I did not realize how important line of sight was until after the stream that we did where I was like, oh shit. It was it, the moment that got me was when I was pushing artillery. Yes into wood, like I was pushing artillery and there were units in the woods. And I'm like, I am right up against these fucking units with Napoleons. Why is this artillery not absolutely lighting them up from the flank? What's happening here? And then I clicked the line of sight and I was like, oh my God, they can't see six feet in front of them because of this fucking forest. They cannot see six feet into this fucking forest. I have no idea how to break their position with this artillery unit, despite being right fucking there. Uh, which is both a strength of the game in terms of its ability to convey information, like convey the feel of things, but also a difficulty of readability and a difficulty of learning how to play it. So let me toss this out though. This is one of the hardest solutions to solve in like making games that use 3D terrain, because like Kato and I, you were, you and I were playing um, two games that in some ways like are clearly taking some yeah. inspiration from Sid Meier's Gettysburg. We were, we were playing the Game Lab's uh, Ultimate General Civil War, Ultimate General Gettysburg. And like they're doing the same thing of like really gorgeous, like uh, looking hand-drawn maps of the terrain, the ridges. Like it seems beautifully like the rolling terrain. And for a minute there, I'm sitting there. I'm like, wow, this is so readable compared to Gettysburg. And I still like the more I more I play the game, the more I start to think like this is <laughs> opaque as hell. I actually don't know what I yeah, can say. It's it's a it's a very subtle grading in that game of just like things are kind of kind of in light, kind of in shadow. Um that like doesn't parse when things get messy, you know? Uh but the like the like um maps themselves are also so uh what was the word I tried to make up? <laughs> like a diorama. They they feel yeah. like uh of a dioramic. Di- yeah. Diorama. <laughs> I think I was going further than that. I was going like diro diro dioramatic. Dioramic is good though. Dioramatic. Like add in <laughs> get the whole word diorama in there. Um but there's there is something um about that scale that I don't know, to me feels like when i don't know like when you see like these kind of like um battle dioramas of of like the civil war and stuff there's there is there's i mean there's obviously a level of abstraction because you can put however many individual figurines there are in there you know but like in these games well i think one of the things that was like probably the most difficult thing even with the newer newest ones is that like each individual 
like person that you see in like a, a brigade or whatever is probably like 50 to 100 people and like the rate at which you're gathering casualties is not immediately apparent um mm-hmm. because they're yeah. doing this kind of like scaled out version even though yes. it seems like it, uh it seems like not like you know like i could i would look at the scoreboard and be like wait uh, Six thousand people have died. How? Where? Yeah. When? <laughs> like you see the bodies kind of start to like pepper the field, but it's like these units that got routed, there's still like five across, right? Like there's still like uh, yes. five little figure mm-hmm. figurines basically there, but somehow that that troop has lost like a hundred or whatever casualties, um, and it's just like. I mean, this is partially the uh, a scale issue that has to do with like just how big and unwieldy this would be to have a god's eye view on in real life, right? Like you have to, there has to be some level of abstraction there, but also like leaning towards the, this this kind of scale of the diorama, which is like, um, like historically, like I don't know, like my this is part of why like uh the fucking Halo used those diorama. You remember those that was a Halo yeah. Three that made those ads that were all, yeah. all had, had all these dioramas in them, right? Like that yeah. immediately. Yeah. Oh, Rob, wait, you, Rob, you'll, you'll know you what these don't are. know these. You will. You have no, to. You will. You know. <laughs> oh you will remember God. them when you see them. These were like some of the best video game commercials. Like they're, they're yeah. fucking excellent. Yeah. They're god tier. But like, and like that evokes specifically for some reason. I mean, maybe this also happens in other like types of war, but for some reason the like war diorama feels so linked to the civil war for me right mm-hmm. like those are the t- those are the kinds of dioramas that t- depicting war that i see the- saw the most often in my childhood just because you know i grew up in the states and you also grew up in the 90s which is the era <laughs> right, of right. civil war like <laughs> and so like that it's it's very funny that it looks like artistically they're trying to go for that exact look and scale and like it ends up kind of obfuscating a few more things than than would make it more intuitive to like notice like oh that that's how bad it's really it really is right now for these for these troops you know and that's where i think part of my struggle to read it, it intersects with the, what the narrative the game is trying to tell about this war is that the thing that i realized eventually is that it's not about numbers on the board it's not about numbers on the board it's about morale and that is that was the hardest right. thing to get right. used to is the fact that you're right kato the numbers aren't surfaced to you cuz the numbers don't fucking matter all well. that much the numbers the numbers matter but the numbers don't matter so much because morale is the key thing here right. you can have 134 crack troops who have a ton of fucking morale against a bunch of newbies any of those trap crack troops are pretty outnumbered the fact that they have higher morale means that they will last longer and that those other units will break before they do yeah well, and, the, the and, numbers and, only matter insofar as like who won at the end has to do with those numbers yeah right yeah the scoring they matter but in terms of like how units like do on the Moving, battlefield right matters matters a bit less that's a good point like and I, this is this is another thing about like so the the assumption this game, I don't know, so let me, let me back up because I think this has changed a little bit. I was thinking about games that have sort of drafted off of some of the um, design principles laid down in Sid Meier's Gettysburg, and I, I've always felt that the Total War series took a lot from this, mm-hmm. especially mm-hmm. the earlier games, like when they start with like the original Shogun Total War and Medieval Total War, where these are games that are very much about like 
Um, who has height advantage? Who is in covered terrain? Uh, who is uh, who is in a set formation versus uh, who's sort of split up? And all this stuff, like the game's kind of built around this. And a big part of those games is like it's not about can you shatter can like can you kill the enemy army? It's about can you break the morale and get them running? At which point, that's when you can do the real real damage to them. And I think this has changed as this series has gone on. I think, like, you know, Ren, when you and I were playing, uh, you know, Total War Warhammer 3, I feel like it is much more, uh, especially with, with some of the types of armies you face, where, like, by definition, the troops can't be broken uh, and will never run, mm-hmm. that it does turn into a game about can, your, can you do lethal to the enemy? And here, it's very much a, it is very much a game about lethality is really second to can your troops just stick longer in this place mm-hmm. rather than the other guy. If the mm-hmm. other if the other side will just run out of fight before yours do, it it may not even matter. Uh, you know who is getting the better of the engagement; those guys will leave, and you know you'll you'll hold the ground. And I think that's I think so many games like return this idea of like, OK, well, what matters is like destroying enemy units. And here it's like, no, it's it's outlasting them. It's it's wearing them down and like conserving morale. And that's a really different approach, uh, especially, I think, now uh, rather than like, you know, 20 years ago. Yeah, I also think that this ties into the way we were talking about the lost cause earlier and the way like this narrative about war this is the narrative about war that this particular like era of civil war culture and civil war like thought around the civil war leans into is the idea of sticking in it like you know uh, is the morale battle the morale battle is way more important than putting numbers on the board because the morale battle lets you talk about more clearly and this is not a, a, a fully a dig at the game but lets you more clearly illustrate the lost cause or the idea of soldiers as these mythic figures is if you f- display their morale in numerical terms and that is the primary thing the idea of their willpower and their gallantry being the fundamental thing that defines this war is so much more obvious if you make morale the fundamental axis around which like every battle turns um i think that's i think that's definitely part of it i i think what i what i would what i would say is this goes all the way back to um, uh, this is a passage that it didn't get cut. I just knew enough not to write it in the <laughs> piece I was writing. But I honestly feel like the model from Raoul in this game is Red Badge of Courage. Stephen Crane's uh, like novella about a soldier at his first battle during the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think this is widely read now as it used to be. I think I think Stephen Crane is one of those authors that like as American literary history rolls forward. Stephen Crane just has sort of gotten dropped down the list of like people you have to read. Uh, but okay. Red Badge of Courage is, pardon? I said, well, we read it. So like a few years after you still there, but I don't know. No. Y'all didn't get it at your, no. yeah, I didn't think so. Nope. And I, again, spent a lot of time studying the American South and it was not included. So, but Red Badge of Courage, uh, the, the arc of that novella is it is a soldier who is pulled into his first engagement 
And it was it was it's a really well regarded book in part because of its depiction of of combat, which is utterly chaotic and dreamlike. Uh, mm-hmm. That it's a soldier in his first battle, and none of it makes any sense to him. You know, it's your your march to a place. You're told to stand there. Next thing you know, uh, you know all hell is breaking loose around you, and the kid runs. Uh, and it is about the majority of the novel is about him after he runs, and he is just now wandering this forest. Um, trying to figure out what he's supposed to do and like trying to w- reckon with the fact that like he is a coward and he abandoned his post. He abandoned his friends. Um, he has no idea what happened to his unit and the battle. Um, and so he wanders these woods for, you know, most of the day and then eventually sucks it up. He's like, gotta go face the music. And he starts trying to like reconnect with uh, his army and falls in with some other stragglers who also ran and slowly gets sort of, recollected with a bunch of troops and he finds out the battle's still going. And this time he and his, he is, he and his troops go back into battle and this time it's more coherent to him. He can sort of at least make out the fact that like the gray serpent line in the trees that they're firing at, uh, because civil war is one of those first battles and this game does not bring this across well at all. Civil war is one of the first wars where soldiers begin to report the phenomenon of never seeing their enemy. Um, mm. because the rifles that they're using were deadly at 300 yards engagements would start to happen where like you had the idea of there being an enemy line across the way, but you would never like see anyone. Um, and so red badge of like, you know, culminates in him sort of like eventually confirming for himself that like this is all part of the experience of soldiering and like he didn't fail uh that he that he did do his duty but also to a degree this is kind of the arc of a lot of civil war battles where troops broke ran reformed and would go back into line um it was all just a matter of like at what point would they break but they would eventually always run i think one of the interesting things you said there's the idea that the game doesn't clarify well or doesn't make it clear that you're not seeing who's shooting at you. And actually one of the things I was going to, I was going to applaud the game for was actually how well it illustrated that for me. Okay. And, and how, how well that feeling of like, who the fuck is firing at me? Cause I remember there was one moment where I was, I was pushing about a line and I was like, why is my entire left flank getting absolutely fucking owned? And then I go to the other side of the map and at the, at a different battle location, there is just two fucking artillery units. Just like, bop, 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 bop. Sit. I'm. I feel like miles away from that. But I was like, "Oh shit. Okay, cool. I had no idea who was hitting me." The other example being that time where I was pushing that artillery up to the tree line, where mm-hmm. I knew the people theoretically were, and being like, "Oh my god, they can't see them. Oh my god, they cannot see those people who are six feet in front of their face because of this tree line and because of the specific topography." Actually, made that sense of like, "Who the fuck is shooting at me?" Extremely clear. Um. I think I think you're right in that people don't realize the scale at which this combat was fought and, and the fact that you couldn't see people doesn't become clear because of the way that we think about Civil War as all line combat as opposed to line combat in addition to skirmishing and tree-based combat and like cover-based combat where you have people with breech-loading rifles who are able to pop out for a second, bop, breech-load, put another round in, and then keep going from a position you cannot see them from and that they will not stand up from. Well, that's, uh, um, yeah. Go oh, go ahead. No, I was, oh, I was, I was just, gonna, just yeah, going go to say, like, thought. as far as the distance thing, I think for me, where it gets obscure, 
there's so much the maps are so big, but frequently the amount of space or units or the, the amount of active space in the map is actually very small. And so I do find that like I think one thing it doesn't bring across well is the space on your screen at which units will move into firing range is really, really small. And it'll be like, I need these guys to advance by like three pixels into firing range, or they will just stand there and do nothing. And I think like, this is probably my biggest issue with the game is that like units get really fussy to manage lines are hard to read and maintain and making sure everyone's like doing something in battle gets really tricky in part because things end up so congested in a way. But like, if I look at the amount of space available on the map, it doesn't need to be that way. Like you could have just scaled it differently so that you could have maybe a little more elbow room to like pick these units visually Mm -hmm. apart. Uh, But they didn't, they didn't go that route. Um, And I, you know, maybe it's the technology of the time. Maybe it's the way these maps have to be repurposed for different scenarios. But I think for me, this is one of, this is one of the things where so much of this game is about making sure your line is all doing the right thing and everyone's like fighting efficiently. And a lot of times it turns into find which guys in your line look like they're fighting, but are not like stare <laughs> at them oh, as like, God, yeah. you so guys, are you guys, do I need to move you a pixel forward? What yeah. the fuck are you doing? What yeah. the fuck are you guys doing? Three feet, motherfucker, so I, three feet. You can see them. Just step forward. Like, what do you like? Do I, do I have to tell you like those, you see those guys murdering your buddies in the formation next to you? Like just step forward and shoot them. You are flanking. <laughs> you are flanking. You are looking at their sides. The fuck are you doing? <laughs> Advanced commands your best Jersey friend. accent as she's yelling at her, <laughs> yelling at her Civil War troops. I, so I think it, if uh, I was so taken, like going through that computer gaming world, one an era in which like you forget that like right half these books, these magazines were advertisements. Um, yeah. that's why they were so thick. Hey, um, the ads were good too. Mm. Oh, dude, the ads are so fucking good. I, I can't even if like I just highly recommend clicking that PDF after we finish recording. But the the like the ads for most games were like emotional, like thematic, evocative, and then I want to show you the ad for Gettysburg. Um, which oh, is yes. uh, it's split in it's split in half. Um, to to represent like the both oh two of the God. sides in in the conflict, and it has um a really zo- like most of the screenshots you're gonna see are the streams we did of, of of Gettysburg were kind of zoomed out. This is like really zoomed in to like show off like the beautiful sprite work in the game. Um, and it's like showing kind of a farm. Uh, well, I guess most most of the battles are in, like farming areas, but, like close up on like a farm, uh, uh, like combat encounter. Um, and on each side you've got you know, the, the the different sides of the conflict, but it has red and then blue lines that are arrows pointing at essentially what are like different features of the game. Like, for example, it says like it has the objective for the South and the North, like one take peach or, uh, peach orchard or a uh, defend peach orchard, um, rally your routed troops uh, around a general for quicker recovery, keep your general close by to improve morale. And so I think it just like says something about how we're talking about this game and when it's trying to communicate about itself, even it found its way into an advertising of itself at a time when, as I think we were talking, uh, Rob, uh, during our stream of like, this is the height of people's like understanding, knowledge, like a broad, uh, appeal, um, in like the PC uh, marketplace, even as like RTSs are taking over as like the popular version of this type of strategy game. You, this is such an interesting pivot point where even Gettysburg like has to be like, okay, look, 
Like, here's what the fuck you do in this game. And it tries to do it in a cheeky, like a semi-cheeky way. But like, it is also being realistic with itself of like, okay, what does this screenshot mean? Um, we're just gonna, gonna tell you. And I think it's like a really interesting way that it talks about itself that then like has a direct line into how we talk about it, you know, decades later. Yeah, I like I think something else that is drafting off of as well is that in this era, it's tough for me sometimes to tell apart. Was I into like military history shit and then I just looked for PC games that fed that or was military history shit just such a part of like mainstream PC gaming offerings that like you get drawn into this where it's like, oh, there's a new Gettysburg game out. One of this one's. I think it's both. Like you're looking through the reviews of this yeah. issue, and it's like, okay, one, there's a review of Fallout, and then there's a review of like the new Panzer General. Like then you put, and then there's a new like they would have like whole sections of strategy reviews, right? Like, and then you have subgenres within there because there was so much of that being made. So I think I don't know. Like like you clearly like took the strategy at a young age, and then just like I don't know, you found your subgenres because there were so many of those being made, and they were being forwarded. It's not like these were you were reading strategy game digest. Like it was computer gaming world. Like it was that in PC gamer. Like this is like where you go to learn about PC games. And these are being forwarded as like, I mean, the game on the cover that month was like a flight sim. Like that's not what you put on a, you know, you'd put on a magazine cover these days, but like, that's what you could do back then. Well, also like 25 reviews. What are they? Like you said earlier, Patrick, age of empires, total annihilation, Panzer General 2, Hexen 2, Sid Meier's Gettysburg, <laughs> Shadows of the Empire, Riven, the sequel to Mist, Fallout, <laughs> Fallout's in here, Jesus, I have 16 and more. So like, you're, this is the era. This is the era for this specific yeah. thing to be happening. And I think that like, that is, that is the big difference. Someone who like grew up in the, sorry. As someone who grew up in the PS2, 360, and then Xbox One eras. <laughs> the Halo Wars era, as we call it. There is not, there was not an entry point for me into military history in a way that like I was ever really interested in. And instead, my entry points were different ways of like thinking about storytelling and like blah, 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 blah. And I think that like, I think it's very easy to think of the interests of, you know, what are what are now considered niche interests, realizing that they are the backbone of an entire platform for literal decades. Yeah. Right. And, and I think that and, and this is a weird thing where, like, I feel like for a few years there. Like, absolutely, a, a part of it is who was like, who were piece of gamers at this point? Absolutely, there's a ton of like military history buffs and shit who are into it. But I also think in that space, like you look at these magazines and things aren't specialized as much, right? Like it's kind of like the recommendations when something you get an editor's choice award from these places back in this day. It's like highest recommendation, no reservations. Do you like games? Like this is worth a look. You should you should check this out. And a lot of times they weren't wrong. Like a lot of times you were like, yeah, this is like state of the art, like in like on this platform. Uh, and that and I think that kind of helps war games stay relevant, uh, despite being a bit of a, a, a niche genre, because as you're sort of growing up with these games in some ways, these are such a part of the landscape that you just kind of end up being familiar with some of these concepts 
just from being around it. And I think that increasingly ceases to be the case as these, as these games, uh, you know, fall out of the mainstream. And at that point, the, the shared grammar and the shared subject matter is increasingly not, uh, war games. It's increasingly like, you know, action adventure, uh, mechanics and like ways of designing those games. Um, and so I think that, you know, but I think for a while there, they could get by, really far sort of by trusting the fact that like some of these big topics uh, would at least be familiar to your general interest PC gamer, um, you know, and, and that worked until it didn't. Uh, but the, th- the thing that was interesting in, in doing my research on this game is that the way Rob spoke about it um, and the way, how much you like love this game like, I just took from that to then mean, wow, this game is really important. And also, there must be, like, a lot of discussion and writing about it. And do you want to know, like, s- multiple times when I did searches, deep searches, Uh-oh. what I would f- find when I was like, who is talking about this game? What can I pull from that makes up for my lack of, like, expertise in strategy games so I have like, more things to talk about on the podcast? It would just be, like, forum threads as, like... Here's Rob talking about Gettysburg on a podcast from 2012. Here's a YouTube video on how to run Gettysburg, referencing a conversation that Rob had about Gettysburg somewhere <laughs> else. And and then it's all just to say, one, like, if someone needs to write a book about Gettysburg, get in touch with Rob. Seems to be the foremost expert on this game. Uh, two, this does seem like kind of a forgotten game. Like, for, like, as important as it, like, stands out in... Like, this period of PC gaming history, strategy history specifically, it's really fucking hard to find many people. Like, there's not even a, a cottage industry of, like, YouTube, like, folks who have, like, gone back and, like, hey, let's re- let's reexamine and reappreciate Gettysburg. Like, you have – most of them are just, like, a couple of videos on how to run it, a couple of Let's Plays. But there has not been – I don't know. There just hasn't – this game feels like in the Sid Meier – like sort of, you know, a collection of incredible works. I don't know. Like this one just even amongst strategy nerds does not seem like it gets a whole lot of conversation because I I had to basically dig into what was written about for reviews at the time. And then there's just like a long gap of like any conversation about this game, at least that was like easy enough to find through like the searches I was doing. Yeah, I think as a historical artifact, I'm deeply, deeply fascinated with Sid Meier's Gettysburg, both because one the way you're saying, Patrick, it completely disappears from like the cultural imagination of video games, with the exception of a one Rob Zachney who keeps the torch <laughs> fucking lit every 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 few years. Well, Rob I, I like, told Rob when I finally linked when I linked to him the forum post that uh, so he'd done a podcast about in 20, uh, 2012 or twenty thirteen. I was like, he's like, I hope I don't repeat my arguments. It's like Rob, you're allowed to repeat your arguments <laughs> once a decade. Yeah. <laughs> Like, yeah. It's been it's long been enough. 10 years. You're good. You're good. <laughs> and part of the interesting thing that I found was like when I was also doing the thing that Patrick was doing, like looking at writing about the video game Sid Meier's Gettysburg that comes out around the time, is that I also think that like, it, in a way, its exclusion from like the video game's cultural imagination makes it a really fascinating time capsule for where games media and games culture is at at its release date. Because normally you see those conversations evolve, the way we think about games gets muddled as they, you know, go further and further into history, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. One of the things I found really fascinating was that New York Times piece I read. And like the, the very easy narratives about video games writing is that they 
there was an era that was extremely consumer focused and then oh we have left the consumer focused era and now theoretically now there's more personal writing and more criticism blah 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 and then there's this fragment of like no that's bullshit this is there's a new york times piece that says things like automotive technicians are listed in the phone book but who are you going to call when your history breaks down and that is like an example of a continuity and a history of games writing and a history of video games that is often disregarded or at least pushed to the sidelines for easy narratives about history and easy narratives about the development of both the way we write about video games, but also, you know, easy narratives about how games change over time, right? If you excise something as, in some ways, revolutionary Sid Meier's Gettysburg from the narrative, there is a more linear progression of how RTS and strategy games develop. But if you put it in there, suddenly that narrative becomes complicated. And I think that is like an I think it's really cool. I think it's really cool that Gettysburg and the conversation both act as like time capsules of a particular way of experiencing and thinking about video games. What's the next big Sid Meier game after this, Rob? So, I mean, like they have a hell of a run here. Like the very next thing they Because this make, is the first Fear, a- Fear Access game, right? Yeah. This is when they sign on Micropros. I just, in, in, in connection with that, I want to just put this this quote from Brian Reynolds from, from the manual. Who's, he writes... Um, those who have followed the history of our teams over the years will be aware of so-called real-time games are something we haven't been doing a lot of, at least lately. We'd, we'd kind of become known as the turn-based guys. Frankly, with all these C&C clones on the market lately, you might have thought we'd be happy to stay there, we, and we certainly won't be abandoning turn-based games. And then it goes on. But there is a certain... Like, I posit that part of the reason this game, like, kind of disappeared into history is because it's lost in the switch to the populism of the RTS. And um, you, I don't know, you can feel, like, a little bit of, like, acidity towards, like, what's happening there, even in, like, Reynolds' writing about about the game in the in the manual. Yeah, it's... Gosh, it, so it is, it is a funny thing. I think um, it's easy... Again, it's easy to forget how many really unremarkable RTSs were, were coming out at this point. Yes. Um, like it's, it's uh, like they're getting, they are starting to swamp uh, the marketplace a little bit. And a lot of these are, are now forgotten, but I, but I do think uh, in terms of, well, I think it's weird. I think so maybe Sid Meier even more than for access. Uh, it's easy to end up pigeonholing uh like that career much more like his career microprose spans like war games, flight sims, uh, a spy game. Um, there's civilization. There's, you know, pirates, which is not really a nautical sim, but has elements of that. Like Sid Meier's career is all over the map. And so they all leave like, he and his court collaborators all leave microprose, which was a huge publisher at the time. Um, and they all bail. Things are not going well there. If you like, we did an interview on the main feed with uh, Greg Furch, who was uh, art director over at Fraxis for years. But he talks about like in the early '90s, if people got pulled into an office at Microprose, it's because they were getting fired. Like just like precarity was in the air at Microprose. And uh, Firaxis, the, the core Firaxis team kind of bounced and they ended up in this in-between phase where they made Sid Meier's Gettysburg in this lull where they are 
this is sort of this is also one of the rare moments where the publishing model actually just works as a publisher, where a publisher comes along to d- developers and is like, "We will publish your game." What that means is they will, you know, pay for the packaging, they will pay for marketing, and they will make sure it reaches store shelves. But beyond that, like they're not in the business of owning developers; they're not in the business of running them uh, as much. Firaxis sort of gets in those relationships, um, and for a while, they're they're. Because civilization rights stayed with microprose, they're all kind of free of civilization for a minute. And so the next thing they make, though, is Brian Reynolds' take on civilization, but make it sci-fi, uh, which is Alpha Centauri. Right. One of the greatest, like, I, I still thought, like, you know, this is another one of my hobby horses, but one of the greatest sci-fi games ever made. Um, yeah, that game was huge. Like, I, I remember, the, the you know, despite not being interested in civilization like it kind of was too much for me the pc gamer like alpha centauri cover was so fucking striking that i was like now it's time to give this a shot again reader it was not but uh i was i was taken by the narrative that maybe it was because that game looked so fucking beautiful when it came out yeah like alpha centauri is a a a really odd thing because on the one hand you can look at it and it's like this is a reskin of civilization on the other hand, it's it's really not. There's there's narrative layers to it that are really fascinating, and then there's just features that exist, but maybe shouldn't. But it's cool that they do. <laughs> like like Alpha Centauri has terraforming in it, and you can like it changes rainfall patterns and like what tiles become over time. Yeah, Ren, you look uh, concerned. No, I'm looking. You said Sid Alpha Centauri is is in some ways people. There's this narrative about how it is like a re, re basically redo a civilization. Yeah. I'm looking at a screenshot of Alpha Centauri and I'm staring at it and I'm going, "This could not be further from my current imagination of what civilization is." Okay, but pull up screenshots specifically of Civilization Two. Okay, because let me explain. show you the screenshot that I'm looking at. Yep. Yep. Pull up a Civilization 2 screenshot and I think okay. the uh the similarities will jump out. <laughs> also, I apologize uh on the recording there's um two fire trucks just appeared outside of my apartment. Oh good. Ominous. Okay. It's not for me. <laughs> um but yeah, so like Ren is sharing is sharing a city management screen from Alpha Centauri which has like uh you know the square tiles uh with little like buildings and shit on them there's the little like happy worker face there's the little like drone face um mm. like no i'm looking i'm looking at sid Meier's civilization too the yeah. aesthetics are the same but the degree of mechanical complexity and mechan- like amount of systems at play are wildly fucking different in these two screenshots um i can post the other thing that i'm looking at here that's the thing that's sticking with me mm-hmm. is that like the layering of systems I'm seeing in Alpha Centauri is something that I would expect of like a modern, extremely complex 4X. Like this is this is at Stellaris levels of complexity, even beyond, I would say, Stellaris levels of complexity in the screenshot that I'm seeing 20 years prior. Um sorry, this has just really caught me off guard uh and is as really fascinating to me. Um no, I no, apologize. No, hold on, let me uh so I'm pulling up that's the one to one. That's the city management screen in Civilization Two. Um, <laughs> the little Elvises are entertainers to keep the happy populace, or the people in the turquoise uh, hats and everything. Like it is, 
like it is a more complex game, but there is a surprising amount of correlation between those two really different images mm-hmm. uh, in terms of what you are managing. But like, but Al Centauri is pushing more aggressively in new directions. Like it is doing like it is it is also a it is a sci-fi story that is entirely concerned with ecology um and like uh xenoecology uh in this imagined like this is in some ways uh this is like a kim stanley robinson uh 4x in some ways the fraxis goes on to make here uh and and so it is like this is kind of this window where they do this stuff, but it doesn't take long. And I mentioned this a bit when I was, when I was pitching this project as a, as a one-on-one topic, um, you know, they do for, they, they do for access does Sid Meier's Gettysburg. They do Alpha Centauri. It's like within a year of each other. And I think it's not too long after that, they're reunited uh, via 2k with the civilization license. And they do a few remakes of Sid Meier's older games, but they do turn back into being a civilization studio and they're kind of the civilization studio until XCOM and that XCOM is now where people are reminded like, wow, they're, you know, Fraxis can do all the strategy the the, the two extremes, the big four X <laughs> and, and a squad in a squad tactics game. Uh, but, but that is, that is kind of the arc, but, but I do think, and this came up a little bit in my conversation with Greg Furch, like, you know, this is an era where you could have an idea, mess around with it, and create a complete game after multiple iterations of dev cycle within a year. And that's hitting the store uh, shelves. Get, yeah, Gettysburg was in, in the manuals, like pointed out to be have the prototype, like the bare bones prototype was more or less had coalesced in October of 96. The game ships in October 97. They don't, they don't invite the art team to work on the game until March. Like, just like the scale of how games are made at that time is just, you know, they were using existing tile, you know, they were able to, you know, kind of get it together to make sure the gameplay flowed and they can start working on the AI. But like the notion that a game was developed, you know, in er like if we think of that as like pre-production and then like production, like the production is one is 12 months, probably less because it has to, you know, get, you know, go to the factories and come out in October and an art team is working on it, you know, you know, (laughs) five months before it's finished. It's just... It was just a different time. It was yeah, just wild. a different time and scale for making games. It is it is it's quite literally like hard to comprehend. Because yes, you can see that stuff happen in the independent space, but like this is like we're talking about like the games that were on the covers of magazines and like those were made in, you know, eighteen months at most and frequently in a year or less. And it's yeah. just just wild. I mean, yeah, I think that is I mean, yes, you can see it in the independent space, but I feel like even like ideas of what game design is have changed so frequently. Like you could theoretically yeah. see it, but you never do. Not right. to not to the degree that you're describing, because the way that we talk and think about like game design as a narrative and as a way of like produ- as like a craft of producing art is so fucking different now. I think that is like sorry, I'm getting very excited because I find this extremely extremely interesting. No, and I do think like you know when I was talking to Furch, I, I kind of asked the question. I don't think he had a, a a firm answer like which he preferred was the you know on the one hand you can make things that are visually much more ambitious uh you have much more time to work on things but the thing you can't do it at that scale anymore is have a one year project where it's like inside of a year you have brought an idea to fruition and like done multiple passes on it and that can stand like toe to toe with like 
whatever is the state of the art in the industry. And I, and I do think like so much of game design and development is iterative. And I think it's just so much harder to, I suspect that it is harder to iterate now when you're talking about the sheer number of moving pieces to a game development project. Whereas like in this era of for access, it is very, you can very rapidly change what you have going on in the game and like make stark departures from what you were doing and reconsider some stuff because you're just not that path dependent at any point Mm -hmm. in the process as opposed to now where it's like two years into a project it can, I think this came up a little bit around like uh, ran your piece about Abermore, but like there's a lot of games that, that fit this, fit this mold where it's like, we're late in this process and we still don't really know what we have. Like the Deus Ex mm. example um, mm. where it's like, we're pretty late in the day here and we're still trying to find like, is this fun? Did we, what is did this we game? get there? Yeah. <laughs> what, did, what did we make? Well, I also think that like the interesting thing that I'm thinking about here is with Gettysburg as an example is that like, or, you know, the other example being Alpha Centauri, right? My, my surprise at the number of systems that were extant in Alpha Centauri right? And the amount of like systems I can see on screen and also the amount of systems present in Gettysburg, for example, right? Is that the increased, like, we talk about systems and systemic interaction in games as the visible systems that you can see and interact with as the player and not the systems between systems that are actually providing, you know, the backbone for play. And I think the interesting thing with, with Gettysburg and Alpha Centauri are they are systems driven, but all of the systems are visible to the player and the systems be- or semi-visible to the player or, you know, are extant. But the systems between the systems are fewer and further between. And so the complexity systemically from a like, game design perspective goes up, but the technical complexity goes down in a way that I find really, really fascinating. Yeah. It's like, it is a weird, like, it's a weird evolutionary moment. Um, and, and for me, like this feels like one of those transitional, I mean, you see it like, you know, Pat as Patrick leafs through the computer gaming world, uh, like contemporaries here, the transitions are happening so thick and fast. Like I, I think, um, I was, I was sort of leaving through 1995 where, um, that other civil war game that we looked at, um, John Taylor's battlegrounds game. And like in the middle of that year, CGW is asking, "Are DOS games dead?" <laughs> and the answer right, is yes. This, this is during the three point one transition, right? Uh, or the ninety five transition? Yes, Windows ninety five. Three point one doesn't supplant as like just the right. Base you, you're still system. yeah. You you would be yeah. in three point one. You would you would punt to DOS so that you can. You only did three point one for your productivity. DOS is right. where you're playing your games. So you can manage right. your RAM. Um, and then okay, with yes, 95, yeah. it, it, that all changes. Well, that's the DirectX but, era, right? Which is yeah. like, oh, actually, we're going to have these consistent set of APIs, developer tools that are going to make, like, games sing. And, like, they're going to run so much better. Like, we don't need this DOS stuff anymore. That's, oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, all these things. And, and the, things, the thing we're not at, we haven't even discussed this yet. I think we are just before the fact that the hot market is 3D accelerator cards. In this period, because um, like, the quake, right? Because the like in that, I keep going back to this CGW issue, but like they reviewed like the quake two demo, right? So like quake two is what like br- like 
brings along the idea of like real time lighting and uh, like these are reasons why you would want to or like colored lighting. I'm forgetting the exact like technical uh, phrasing, but like it was like you could see through water. Water could be transparent. Mm -hmm. And then Mm -hmm. like the lighting got also not always which render are you running for a game? There's some games where it's like you use this rendering. uh, The water's opaque, but there's a swimming sequence. So yeah, that was the first thing I did when I got whatever 3D card I had was like I booted up Quake. And like that was the big thing in that first I think in the first level, there's like a little bridge and a river. And if you went over there, you could see through it to the bottom. And it's like, damn, love to have a 3D accelerator. But yeah, that this is this is happening at the at the same time as things like software rendering are like proving to just be not enough to power 3D games. Um, Well, and the, and the fact that like, you know, we're, we're talking about like there being things that are hard to parse, which is like what are like the strength of numbers here? The weird thing about sprites is if memory serves, they're expensive from a hardware standpoint. Um, mm-hmm. That sprites and remain actually expensive compared to a low poly model uh, because like video cards are set up to render and light uh, poly uh, polygonal models really, really easily. Sprites don't really work that way. I think I think maybe this has changed, but my understanding is if there's if, like sprite based shit still basically is a direct hit on the CPU. It's CPU so, heavy versus, yeah. Yeah, and so even to this day, you're kind of like, if you're going to do, if you're going to go the sprites route, here is the thing. You can't offload some of that work to uh, the computer's like primary visual processor. Um, but like, this is even more so back in this era where you can sort of see that like one little character model stands in for like 50 people. And that does make it hard to parse when we're talking about things like, how am I doing? Usually a good indicator was like, who's got more dead people stacked up on their side of the battlefield, Mm -hmm. but there just aren't that many folks, uh, you know, uh, rendered on the screen. And so it can be, it can be kind of tough to, to parse that, uh, as well. A thing I do want to call out just as a cool, like thing that this game, I think brings across really well as a historical note, union regiments were bled white. They never got replacements. So a union regiment be formed and they would go fighting and they would be used up until the regiment was like destroyed or mustered out. The Confederate troops generally replaced losses, which is why in so many of these scenarios, the Confederate units are just bigger. It's because both like both armies have a formation called brigade, which is comprised of like four regiments. But in the Confederate Army, each of those regiments is being kept closer to like a paper strength of like 800 people mm-hmm. in a Union Brigade. Each of those regiments is maybe after like, you know, a year of hard fighting down to like 200 people. And so you this is why the Union Army is often really kind of fussy to manage, because you'll end up with like literally the, a regiment the, the, that is two character models. Did what's they just the make new brigades? Yeah, what's the strategic argument for for doing that? Not a strategic argument, a political <laughs> argument. So here, so here is here is why. That's it a better explanation, at least. <laughs> here is why it operated this way. So I can't remember why the Confederates had a better pipeline for this. Um, I think, in part, I do think like Jefferson Davis ended up taking on much more of the like War Department tasks uh, himself and like organizing that army. The, on the Union side, though, and this is the weird thing, 
there was there was at one point an argument that like the Confederacy lost because you know as a Confederacy of states they didn't they couldn't get behind a strong central government and couldn't fight effectively. That's bullshit. They basically like gave themselves over to warlordism to like try and win the war. You know who actually like was way like less put together was the Union, because while on the one hand, Abe Lincoln is there trying to micromanage armies and is willing to be like, suspend the Constitution, let's do whatever it takes to uh, keep the Confederate walls from the door, when it came to raising the army, that was left to Union governors. And these guys were so important that, these guys were so important that they like loved being able to hand out favors to political allies and friends. You want to be a colonel of a regiment? Go for it. But to do that, you have to raise new regiments. Hmm. I have a question. Yeah. Is part of this because uh, the political maneuvering is one we're looking at, like like you said, two, at this point, becoming distinct political systems? Um, is the other part that, like, union political appointments are more common because of the reality that they had to put the fucking country together after the, like, it was a, it was a versus a conquering war. Right. In some ways, the South is trying to be a conquering force, despite their their self portrayal as like a as secessionist, as trying to establish their own, you know, state. Um, in some ways, is a like cool. Once we're done, we get to shit set all this shit up. Versus the Union having to then rebuild a bunch of shit, uh, and so political appointments are more necessary for the long term health of the country is that part of it or is it mostly no, just because I, I don't because they couldn't take the long view like the thing the thing to remember mm. is like when the war starts literally everyone especially north thinks that the first enlistments were done for 90 days everyone thought the war had a three-month clock on it and it would be done so the first enlistments for the armies that were raised were 90 days that gives you like 30 days to train 30 days to march east and then 30 days to go win the war and that's kind of how the army is raised. But I think uh, genuinely, I think the bigger thing is that union states, more populous, you tended to have more sophisticated political machines mm-hmm. and coalitions. Mm. So what you had were these really powerful governors with entire systems of like patronage and connections in these really diverse, economically powerful states. And then that drove an approach to raising the army where the governors really liked raising new regiments in part because also, and Gettysburg, this is relevant, when the Confederacy threatened to invade, which they did a few times, the governors would often try to hold back their own regiments and be like, no, we're not sending troops to go serve under McClellan outside Washington. We are going to have our own people like defend our frontier. This is how McClellan gets his start. He basically, on his way east, I think takes over... Ohio basically has an army and he uses that army to keep the Confederates out of Ohio. And it's like the union's first war war win. Uh, he becomes their first war hero uh, at this point, but all that is made possible basically because like the governor of Ohio is like, yes, as Supreme warlord of Ohio's military forces, I give you permission <laughs> to take Ohio's military forces into battle against the Confederacy, and we'll deal. We'll we'll send some of this along to Lincoln later as we can, and so that's kind of the reality on the Union side. 
and then it just turns into um, all these governors rather than like raising replacements and sending them onto units. Instead, they vastly preferred being able to raise a new regiment, organize it however they wanted and hand out political appointments uh, to people they liked to go and lead these things. It's a disaster because it means you always have like entire units full of rookies who are going in completely like unaware of what they're in for. Whereas in the Confederate army, you get put with veterans and they kind of show you the ropes here. The union, it's like, you know, it's going to show you, well, the Confederates will also show you the ropes in the union army, just in a different way, (laughs) like probably by massacring half of you. And then you kind of figure it out. That was one of that was one of the things I noticed when I was playing. I was like, "Oh yeah, hell yeah! These are your this is your best brigade." And it cuts, and I'm like, "Those numbers seem kind of low." And then it cuts to, "This is your dog shit brigade." And I'm like, "Why is that number so high?" Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Oh shit! They just took a massive L. Fuck me, I guess. And that was actually part of one of the things that I found really interesting about the game is like realizing that my instinct when I'm playing games is to use my weaker units as a bulwark and then flank with mm-hmm. generally mm-hmm. stronger deployments. That is that is my that is my default instinct. That is not what you should do here because those those new troops if you put them, even if you have them in a good formation, they are going to fucking fold. They are going to fold like that and if you flank with them, they're also going to fold like that. You have to keep if you want to fo- if you want to flank with with new troops, you have to keep them in a double line. You have to mm-hmm. do a double line mm-hmm. regimen that where you know that first line they are going to fold pretty damn quick and it's actually the line behind them who's going to do the damage in the flanking attack. Right, and then probably you'll put a couple generals by them, their brigade commander, and then maybe the corps commander to give them a little courage. And then really, you know, it'd be helpful is if they were just hiding behind some trees too. And that's and that's that's like the name of this game is like how do you make how do you yeah like I think you hit on it how do you make shitty troops effective? You have to do something with them, but you can't actually do what feels like the most urgent thing, which is like move over here, stand here, and attack these guys. Rookies will run before they can get into striking distance. And yeah. so a big part of this game becomes like, where do I hide you so that you can't betray me at the worst possible moment? Like, where is the, you know, you know what I mean? It's like the, you're, you, you know, you're, you're a boxer fighting with like a broken wrist. How are you going to mask that from the enemy where it looks like you got two working, working, uh, you know, punches, but really only got one. A lot of my biggest L's in battles were where I was like, okay, cool. There's an artillery unit who is just firing into us from all the way over here, and they aren't defended. That artillery unit isn't defended, mm-hmm, and even mm-hmm. if I move these these like shithead troops over, the artillery unit isn't going to change who they're focusing fire on, because they don't. It doesn't matter that they're not changing who they're focusing fire on, because the fact that those troops have to run over there means that they're like, nah, <laughs> I'm not going to run over it. You want me to run over there? Sure, they're not shooting at me, but you want me to run the fuck over? Th- no, I am not doing that. And then I have yep. to be like, oh, no, I guess I have to use my crack troop. I have to use two detachments of crack troops to go fight this artillery unit on the other side of the fucking map. So these useless assholes over here aren't getting pounded from the flank. Well, and there's the whole like, if you guys just rush the artillery, you guys can knock it out. But rookie troops won't be able to stomach running at the cannon. 
uh, you know, there's the thing where the last hundred yards before you arrive at the cannon is when they just start like each shot is wiping out like 30 dudes. And like you need elite troops to like sort of suck it up and go through that. Whereas rookies, they get one blast of that and they're like, you know what? We're leaving. Um, yeah. So, but I think, and I think this is stuff that the, the game does a great job of bringing through the way, like the tactics change because yes, strong union units by definition are numerically sparse. Whereas like Confederate brigades, some of these things you really can use like battering rams, Mm -hmm. you know, you like they're good troops and they are numerous. And so you can like launch these sledgehammer attacks. Whereas like playing as the union, you the one thing you never have basically is a sledgehammer. You never have formations that are big enough and like good enough where you can just like crush a Confederate flank to crush them. You have to command way more troops effectively and like figure out what to do with these little penny packets of units. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I think that's one thing this game brings out again, the game functions this way, but I like, I bet until we were discussing it, it's not apparent what the fuck is actually going on here. But yeah, but once you know it, it's like, Oh, the game does like, this is actually kind of like the game brings this across, but what's bringing across is like something you know, ideally, you know, uh, there's one last thing I wanted to ask you all before we wrap here in the essay I wrote, I, I kind of have a thesis, which is like, yes, the market's changed in terms of what people are playing. What's what's a mainstream genre. But my actual suspicion is that like. Civil War nostalgia in the 1990s. Feels safer. Uh, than maybe it should have. Um, it feels like there's a lot of convergence on like what the terms of the discussion are, what we talk about when we talk about the civil war. Um, and since then, my thesis is kind of one of the things that's, that's like profoundly changed since then is the realization that like, no, there's actually no convergence or agreement on a lot of this at all. Like the lost cause in some form or another is still alive and well, the moment you begin reconsidering reconstruction, uh, cause I think this is another part like, I don't know how y'all were taught, but when I went to elementary school in the 1990s, reconstruction literally in the, in the state issue textbooks I read reconstruction was bad, you know, may have been well-intended, but all those carpet baggers heading down to bring their Northern corruption and patronage systems to the South. Like, genuinely like part of the terms of agreement were reconstruction bad uh civil war interesting slavery bad um jim crow bad but nobody's morally culpable for this and i think since the 1990s it's like all of these things is clear oh these are not settled at all and now you're much more aware that like when someone's really in the civil war now there's a much more it's much more urgent that you're like, hey, what's your reading list? And I don't think it felt <laughs> as urgent in 1997 as it does now. But I think that's I mean, partly why it like it attracts fewer people in terms of like interest. I mean, even, you know, like in the advertising, it's like, which side will you choose? Because this was a question mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you. I was like, this game like does not have any any sort of like moral framing. It is like, here are these scenarios like play them out. Right. Like these are the two sides. Go fight. Um, and, uh, I'm curious what like modern 
like interpretations of these events like do they feel the need to like contextualize like moral like i'm just curious like where they land like do these games still feel like we just want to be completely distant from like what was happening here we just want to play out the scenarios and then you can be your little war general because it seems like that is in conversation with what you're talking about here is like the closer we get to like hey like why you want to be out there really interested in this topic like where are you coming at that from and then also in an era in which like saying like nah it's cool just to do the scenarios like we're not picking sides just seems like a less defensible position but maybe makes it more difficult to even make those games um uh i don't i don't i'm, I'm curious where they land like these because i saw you're playing a more modern one with with kato yeah before i answer that ren did you have something else you want to get at I mean, I have a, I have a lot of thoughts on this given this was like, I, I have, I'm absolutely fascinated by looking at like, the thing that I find extremely interesting is the way in which, um, whiteness and, and the South, right. And, and whiteness as like a cultural institution in America and the South as cultural institutions in America, both for me function in, in the same way, which is both are identities predicated on grief and, a process of grief that the lost cause is the best example of this, right? The lost cause is a perpetual grieving for an imagined past and an idea of the South, an idea of the civil war that was just and righteous and all of these other things, right? That isn't just limited to the South. It's also how whiteness functions broadly because the first step of integration into whiteness as like an ideology is a kind of flattening of other culture, right? If you, you know, if you look at like the history of like, say for example, um, you know, the integration of of the Irish people into whiteness. It is a process of cultural Mm -hmm. abandonment. And then through that, creating a new identity that is oriented around a lost history. Um, And the thing that I find really fascinating about this era in the 1990s is the ways in which we're looking at a very particular process in that stage of grief or a particular moment in that stage of grief. Um, kind of all of these spikes in civil war history come with a moment yeah. of extreme ideological grief within the American empire. Um, the 1990s, you have the collapse of, you know, fall of the Soviet union. You have what's the enemy. What's what is, what do we do now with this? And the answer is what is history? You know, what is the new way we reformat our history? And the answer is, well, let's look back to the old historical narratives. Now that we don't have a visible enemy, the 1960s, extreme cultural upheaval um and war suddenly you need a nar- you need a new narrative of history and the narrative of history that in was chosen is american exceptionalism and that american exceptionalism immediately starts leading to narratives of grief that then suddenly want to regardless of if it's intentional or not rehabilitate the south as part of the grand narrative of america as an exceptional place even our bastards are gallant and wonderful are are gallant we even our bastards are gallant right and so i find gettysburg to be an interesting cultural artifact but also think that like we are at a different stage in that process of grief and the place that the south sits in the american cultural imagination and the place that whiteness sits in the cultural imagination where we are looking at them both and i think the way that both are talked about very frequently is as violent and acerbic regardless of if the South is actually at its core violent and acerbic, or if everyone from the South is violent and acerbic, they are talked about in that regard, right? It's the same way that like, you know, when you think about the American South and when the American South is talked about in like 
the political landscape, it is like always as pure red states, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That historical narrative then reproduces this grief, turns into anger, and then process goes on and on again. Um, and until that fundamental grief and that fundamental identity is reckoned with and replaced with something that is actually material and grounded in people's experiences of the world, shit's fucked. Um, and I think that Gettysburg is an interesting example of a moment in history where that attempt to re-narrativize history is happening and in some ways succeeded and kind of leads to the current moment. Sorry, that was a very, very long answer to no. your question. Um, yeah, I find... So to, to return to Patrick's question for a moment, I think in general... Well, there's there's a few direction there's a few directions. One, I think most war games treat these things as more abstract military problems. Um and I actually the thing I have sympathy for here is that if you want to make games about like military history, the argument of like why can't you fictionalize it? Some of these same issues we're talking about People need context. History comes with context ready-made in some ways. Like Gettysburg is a compelling story for a military, like for a war game, because the things that happen there are all really interesting in terms of how the whole thing unfolds. And it's a story that people know. Uh, even if you go to less well-known conflicts, immediately people like sort of lose those sort of guide guideposts of like, what am I supposed to do? But yeah. oftentimes, like, as we see frequently when you create like fictionalized history, you end up basically like filing serial numbers off of real history <laughs> and you end up in like similarly weird places. Valkyria Chronicles too is like, what if Operation Barbarossa was the good guys? Like, what if, what if <laughs> yeah. you're, what if you're invading Russia, but instead you're just cute little Dutch people? Uh, we were just like, oh, oh boy, here we go. I hope we can take Leningrad before this, before the snows fall. Uh, like you still end up in a weird place where it's like, okay, so, so wait, this is actually weirder than a world war two game. What are we doing here? Like, why did, like, why did you make these choices? Um, and I do think like, is the nature of a lot of war games to really struggle at like, if you're making a game like Sid Meier's Gettysburg, I don't know how in the text of that game, like in terms of like what you were interacting with as player, you serve to contextualize it against this backdrop of like some of what you're talking about there, Ren, where it's like, hey, where does some of these like, where does this nostalgia come from? What animates it? What is the history undergirding it? Like a game like, Gettysburg isn't really equipped to do that. And really it can't be the game that's better equipped to do that is a visual novel or something or, or an adventure game. You know what I mean? It's like, it's yeah. not really going to be a war game. However, however, there are some war games that really desperately do want to have it. They want to have their lot. They, they want to have their lost cause. And they're like, we are going to really like plant our flag in this notion that like everybody here is admirable uh, and gallant. Like there is. So just to just to 
there's a famous quote. I cannot find it because now it's one of those things where mostly what you find are people debunking it. But there's a famous quote from Robert E. Lee after the war talking about like how happy he was that slavery had been abolished. Uh, and of course, that's not what the war was about. And uh, he could not be more thrilled uh, that, you know, with the with the outcome uh, and the eventual fate of slavery. And I believe in Scourge of War Gettysburg, this quote is thrown across the splash page uh, as like one of the things before you go play the game uh, that you're sort of reminded like, hey, by the way, like, you know, Lee hated slavery. You know, he was really happy that it, that it went away. <laughs> it's OK. It's OK if you choose that side. So you're good. <laughs> the quote's fabricated. Um, so it's not it's not 100 percent sure the quote is fabricated. But let me tell you, it has one source. It is a southern minister who years after Lee's death is quoting a conversation that nobody witnessed that he had several years earlier. Hmm. Uh, and so he's like at two removes from the subject. And he's basically there being like, yeah, Lee told me when no one was around that like he hated slavery <laughs> and was happy, happy that it had been abolished. And all of this is at odds with Lee's track record as a slaveholder. Mm-hmm. Uh, and certainly, and if we're talking about the Gettysburg campaign, when every time the uh, Confederate army went north, they impressed into slavery every single black person they found. And one of the things I've been thinking about with the way you're talking about how war games are kind of incompatible with this style of like, with a with a historical perspective that that asks you to question and engage with and create a particular perspective on like the moral reality of the conflict is that I think that the only way to do it, if, even from a from a war game perspective, is to add more. The story of it has to be the story of the of the war itself and not the story of the battle and understanding how the war machine functions. Right. And I think that one thing that that Gettysburg doesn't do a stellar job of or or does in the ways that you have described to me now in terms of the way in which union regiments don't get replenished is actually give insight into how the war machine functions as a not just on a on a battle level but on the like supply and recruitment level because that is the way that the story of the American Civil War actually gets told is understanding the processes by which the south raises an army the process by which they supply that army and the processes by which um, that labor force grows as they encounter, um, you know, basically people who they then enslave, right? That is the fundamental machine which is driving the Southern war machine is slavery, right? In the same way that the Southern economy is driven by slavery, so too is the Southern war machine. Um, And individual battles will always obfuscate that fact. Focusing on the individual tactical conflict will always obfuscate Mm -hmm. the war machine which drives it. Um, And I think that is like possibly the only way to do it is to zoom out further um, or to create systems which provide opportunities for narrativization uh, and context that then extend into battles. And then suddenly you can see that the way that the South wins this fight or the way that, you know, this equipment process works is the thing that allows them to do this regiment process is slavery is the fundamental underpinning of grief and, and culture that is like key to this recruitment process. And that's hard to do. It is. And I, and I genuinely like, I do like, I, I am 
I also think it's easier said than done because I also think the minute like making a game that depicts these things directly opens a whole ethical can of worms. Yep. And that can be difficult to like get at, especially like, uh, you know, there are there like, there are some things that like you want to be really leery of turning them into game mechanics. Yep. And, but if you're making a game and you're saying you're making the argument, like this is how this like system functions, you are taking up that work. Now, what are you going to do? And I think the question is if what you put in the hands of players directly. Yeah. And and systematizing and showing those systems and having players have to consider those systems versus actually putting them directly in their hands is is one of the many questions that has to be asked when approaching something like this. Which is also like, I, I want can I lean on the uh, uh, New York Times piece again? Just to reiterate, what happens when history becomes a game? A book is a tool. A map is a tool. Games can be a tool, but they are a curious sort of tool because if they're well-designed, they become ends in of themselves. They substitute for the things they're meant to represent. The map becomes the territory. It is an extremely, extremely difficult and dangerous venture to recreate history through simulation in mm-hmm. any way because but the history behind it is complex and opaque history turned into something like a computerized car simple to use and impossible to fix the follow-up quote that i left out last time is automotive technicians are listed in the phone book but who do you call when your history breaks down so i, I think the thing i like about that quote too is it does anticipate a thing that took a long time for people in the strategy space to catch up with. I think when you hear people talking about like paradox game brain, this is part of it is there's a lot of games that do a good enough job of like seeming like they're getting it like major historical processes, like getting the history, right. That there's a lot of folks who do sort of end up thinking this is how it works, but you don't know, you don't, you can't see what is underpinning the system in a lot of ways. You're sort of skimming along the surface uh, and, and seeing what, what results it, it outputs. Um, I think it's, it's, it's kind of funny that this, this quote comes up so early. Cause I, cause I do think it's, it's fascinating to see this concern flagged early around a game that I think in terms of subject matter actually pretty well delivers on mm-hmm. what it's doing and doesn't own open quite as messy a can of worms as like strategy games increasingly do. Uh, down the road as they begin to try to uh, engage with more macro level um, like societal change and like, uh, you know, currents of, of history. Uh, but yeah, like it, the minute you put something for a long time, there I think was kind of an assumption people playing these games is like this, it, this is a simulation and because it's computer making it because it's computer simulation, somehow it is good, right? Somehow mm-hmm. it is, uh, it is correct. And it's making good assumptions and no, you just, you can't see what assumptions it's making and you can't see what's, what's going on, uh, under the hood. Yeah. And I think, I wonder if this is also the core problem. This is, uh, is the way that we think about art and the way we think about things about history where every historical artifact has to be a definitive horse historical artifact and the only historical artifact that you need to engage with to understand a situation, right? For example, the way history is taught in schools, traditionally, right? You get your textbook, you read your textbook, the textbook tells you the history. 
even the way this article talks about Sid Meier's Gettysburg. A book is a tool, a map is a tool, games can be a tool, right? Understanding them as individual catalogs mm -hmm. of something that happened, as opposed to like, the problem of the simulation exists when the simulation exists in isolation versus the simulation existing in the context of literature, historiography, and like historical texts and simulations themselves. This is why I like read, reread Faulkner for this game. And I've been like rereading Faulkner in my life is because like to, under to understand the operations of this history is to understand the literature of the time and is to understand the way this historical narrative is constructed. And I think that we are not yet in a place from a cultural, like broad cultural understanding of history where we're there. And we are, we are approaching things as consummate wholes of various texts as opposed to individual stories that exist in isolation from one another. I think this is... Um and I think this is maybe like ultimately where I tend to come down on these things where I don't, I can see the issues with war games and I'm familiar with like some of the frankly weird subcultures that exist in war gaming. I'm familiar with like how war games at times contribute to whitewashing and laundering reputations. Um, but the other, the other part of it is, Books have done the same thing. You know what I mean? Like it's, it really comes down to how much context are people being supplied with? Like I, I when I look at games like this in particular, I don't think Sid Meier's Gettysburg is trying to mislead anyone. Mm -hmm. um, I think it is, is, it's pretty narrowly focused. And I actually don't think that narrow focus is a, I don't think it's a bad thing. I think where it becomes dangerous is if you start viewing the civil war entirely through this lens of just the battles and the maneuvers and mm. like what happens on like on tactical level to your point Ren, about like if you don't pay attention to what is behind the respective war machines and if you don't pay attention to what the ultimate conclusion of this war and like its outcomes are then you're going to then you're going to run into real problems. Even if you don't fully fall into like lost cause like lost cause bullshit, uh, you will still end up with a really distorted understanding of where this fits in in history, where this fits in like the American story. Um, but when I do when I look at games like this, the the thing that I mostly I think to a degree, I can say, yes, this this game is absolutely a product of a thing that often caused me to have too narrowly a focus too narrow a focus on particular types of history. Games like this are also kind of fun, like foundational to how I end up expanding my lens and like mm -hmm. looking deeply more deeply into more of the history. And so like it's it's one of those things where it like it is I don't think as a genre, war games are like frequently that implicated in the construction of like the lost cause myth, for instance, but neither do they like contribute to exploding it or mm. like contradicting it. Because they're products of the myth in, in, in some, in some ways, yeah. right. In, in, in the fact that like every conversation about the American South and every conversation about the civil war is a product of the lost cause. And is is now has to exist in conversation with the lost cause going forward. 
right? You have mm-hmm. to, it's, it's required knowledge. And in that way, I think Sid Meier's Gettysburg is obviously informed by it, right? The fact that it comes out of Civil War reenactment culture and the spike in Civil War reenactment culture and Civil War reenactment in the cultural imagination in the 1990s means that it is a direct product of this, which doesn't mean it's inherently bad, but it is part of this like historical context building process that you need to apply for everything, right? And, and I don't think war games are different in that regard. It, maybe more extreme examples, yes, but I don't think they're different from other art in that like you have to treat them in context with other things. Otherwise, you're just going to like come to some wild fucking conclusions. And also things like the lost cause, looking at things in isolation is something that ideologies like the lost cause benefit from. Mm-hmm. The less information and the more isolated you your perspective becomes, the more appealing and the more naturalistic narratives like the lost cause become because it's a very simple narrative. And if yeah. you don't only look at certain things, that that simple narrative is way easier to take than the way more complicated and context-dependent narratives that are reflective of actual history. And war games are no different from that, from anything in that regard, but they are extremely, extremely prescient examples and pipelines into more limited focuses of history. And in, in the way that like anything is, you know, anything in isolation is going to be a, like onboarding yeah. into like yeah, but, grim but spaces. The, the thing I'd push back on is mm-hmm. that I think it's so easy to think it like there's revision revisionism and there's lost cause history. And mm-hmm. I think even back in the 1990s, this is just not true. Like I think here's, here's a weird thing. One of the things that can steer you away from the lost cause is legitimately grant versus Lee arguments. Like one, like, cause one of the things that you end up getting pulled into, if you like you eventually, if you inhabit these spaces, you'll eventually be like, Lee wasn't even that good. He fucked up right and left at like Gettysburg. Right. And that's, that's the whole thing. But a lot of times these arguments end up coming around to, well, okay. Uh, why do people think Lee was so goddamn great? And that can lead you into these conversations about like, well, okay, what were the union generals doing at this time? Like, what was the, the union like way of war? How, like, how did the union end up beating this guy? And the threat of history there, like you'll, and you will have military historians like pushing, like, in this different direction of like, well, you know, one of the things that makes uh, the, the union so easy to underestimate is like that they grasp, especially the the commanders who eventually see it through to the end, that they grasp by the end, both the like major strategic goals of the war, but also they increasingly come to understand that slavery is the focus uh, that like, it is like one of the insights that causes Grant and Sherman and such to understand like this is how we're going to bring down the Confederacy is that their hand is forced by the sheer number of slaves who are fleeing plantations and moving into the Union camp and like taking Mm -hmm. up jobs there and like demanding to be soldiers uh, that they do start to that they do come around both from abolitionist conviction, but also as an identification of like military necessity that like this has to be a war of liberation. Mm hmm. And, and that's, and I I mentioned that because I think it is probably too easy. It's, I think it's too easy to sort of, uh, pigeonhole like fields like military history and such Mm. as like, 
hotbeds of reaction. And it's always been more contested ground than that. Mm. I think Gettysburg is, is a like Sid Meier's Gettysburg is a, it's a pretty simple thing. Like where I sort of end up my piece is it's a, it is a, it is a narrow view. Um, It is mostly taking these sort of famous moments as a series of scenarios. But the weird thing is, I don't think, I think it like, I think it is drawing on a lot of common understandings, but I think there's also really stark divergence, even in the height of like 1990 civil war nostalgia about like what we should, how we should sort of weigh these factors and consider them. And that's, but I think in the, in the 1990s, you can probably pretend that like, there's more common ground than there actually is between like lost causers and like mm-hmm. more McPherson esque uh, historians. Mm-hmm. And since then it's like, Oh wow. No, like this, like these, this understanding of this history is not common and it is not shared. And it's still some of these gains are actually still very tenuous. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's, that's something that profoundly changes uh, between sort of the, environment this game was released into uh Mm -hmm. and where we kind of find it now Mm -hmm. um running a little long on time so i was thinking we just start wrapping up here there's there's one last point i i kind of wanted to make this is more of a game design point Mm -hmm. (sighs) i keep i kept coming back to our little our warhammer streams in some ways but just strategy games in general i suppose I like how few factors there are in this. Like, yes, this game depends on a lot of like implicit understanding, but I like how much of it is right there on the screen. Put these guys in this terrain, see the little morale bar, get these buffs. Like, I like how straightforward so much of that is. And when I think about like our experience playing total war, Warhammer, how that isn't like how many times are we just pouring over unit cards? Because like for all the graphic design, you know, for for all the things that this game can like like allegedly show you mm-hmm. through animation and model, I never had a good sense, still don't really, of like what factors are in play at any given moment. What do these what do these things all do? Because it's it's unit cards, it's stat sheets that you really need to familiarize yourself. And I like how much of this game is just all there on the screen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's true. Uh, it was also something I struggled with, though, because to pull back to our Warhammer streams, Rob, what was the way I, I to paraphrase Rob describing my play style in Warhammer? The way that I play tactics and strategy games is I find the littlest fucking hole in an army or in a, in a composition yeah. or in a formation. And I just stick my finger in there and I go until it's a fucking mess and your army totally unspools. And that is really hard to do, I feel. Um, in Gettysburg because of the lack of factors, because there's mm-hmm. less places where I can find little holes and then cause whole things to unspool. And that was something that I really actually struggled with um, playing Gettysburg was the lack of factors meant I had less little things to futz with and to just very slightly throw off the balance of the enemy team to then just throw them into disarray. Um, I think that is, yeah, I think that is both a strength of the game and also mm-hmm. a personal difficulty for me and my play style. Yeah. I think that thing specifically is also like what threw me almost immediately off the game was like, cool. Not really sure what's going on. 
not sure. Am I win? Are you winning, son? I don't know. You know. Um, uh, and by the time I would gain a sense of that, I felt so like off my footing that it was like well, maybe this is better to have just started over. And you know, and that that's a bit of like me taking that old strategy mentality of like it's win lose, and it's like well no actually like losing is gaining a sense of the scenario so that you can eventually win better next time. And that's just like not how that's not how I play games in general. Yeah. Like is like that is like like. I don't like the high score games. I don't, you know, I don't like, like, and that's kind of what these scenarios are is like, get familiar with the contours of it, come back to it and do a better version of what you tried before. Yeah. And that's just like, that is the antithesis of how I typically find enjoyment in games. Like in generally speaking, and like this game very specifically, like is, is picking it that way of, of playing. Well, and I, and I do think like, I think that's how most people tend to play a lot of games like this. I think this is, these are staples of wargaming, but like, yeah, the total war games, their solution is everything takes place in a big macro context of like what is happening across the entire campaign. Like what meaning does every battle have? Um, well, did you win so that you can continue progressing on the strategic layer in right. Sid Meier's Gettysburg? Yeah. It's more like, all right, you learned a few things. <laughs> Next you know, that marginal victory became a tactical <laughs> victory. Maybe you can do better and like run up the score a bit. <laughs> Right. And like, I think the benefit to that is you can have these really like nicely constructed scenarios where there is enough happening in them that you can play around and experiment with things. Whereas like, I think there's a sameness that comes with a lot of, uh, you know, total war style scenarios, uh, especially as they've turned more into matching up unit strengths against each other Mm -hmm. and less driven by like specific terrain. Like, there's only one battlefield that sticks out in my mind that Ren and I fought on. We fought on it twice um, in the Total Warhammer streams. And the rest were kind of anonymous. Like well, they- two stand out. Trap hole. Yep. The fucking, the fucking city. That fucking city where we should have gone city. through the trap hole. We should have gone through the trap hole, Rob. Yep. <laughs> We should have mm, pushed through the trap in hole. Our, in our last Warhammer stream, there was a city that had kind of a a big hole running up the middle and it looked like a highway to death, but it actually it was probably a highway to victory. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, Robin, I looked at it. I was like, if they put archers up there, we're fucked. They didn't put archers up there. <laughs> well, maybe they would have, we gone through it, but yeah, but yeah, that was one. And then the other was this like small grove of trees that commanded this like shallow, uh, like defile and two rocky prominences nearby that created like two choke points. Mm-hmm. But like that was a really interesting battlefield. But for the most part, like the other stuff we tend to play on was like line the armies up, make them go at each other. Very much yeah. like a tabletop, like yeah. war, like a Warhammer, uh, you know, gaming played on like a cafeteria table. Uh, but like here, this is a, this is a game where everything is so specific and like every like square meter of that terrain matters in some way or another. Uh, and like every second of timing matters that there is a lot to like revisit and like experiment with in the way these scenarios are designed. But you have to be signing up for the fun here is to play these scenarios multiple times and like right. come to better grips with them. <laughs> but if you're more like, did I win or lose? I want to move on to the next thing, which is how most games even the strategy space have ended up kind of evolving. Uh, then this whole like, like almost like a racing game, like keep improving your lap times, keep improving your performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of weird. Um, and then once you do that, it's it's 
tune up the difficulty, change, you know, there's, you can add right. random, there's a randomization to the AI. So they'll act differently than the personality type that they're supposed to. And like, that's, you know, I, I see, I see the arc and it's just a matter of like, how much do you, how much enjoyment do you generate out of like facing a scenario, a familiar scenario that changes in different ways? The moment that I realized I actually kind of liked playing Gettysburg happened pretty recently, actually. Um, um, was I played, what is the, Rob, what is the hill um, just south? Uh, it's like... Um, Little Round Top? No. No, it's... Um, Culp's. Uh, Culp's Hill is Culp's. Uh, is to the right of it. Oh, so, Culp's well, Hill is to Cemetery the Ridge. Cemetery Ridge. Yeah. Um, so here's the thing about Cemetery Ridge. I was playing as, as the Union trying to take Cemetery Ridge uh, after someone else had failed to take Culp's Hill from a direct on, direct on assault. And so I was playing the person who they were like, all right, we got to send somebody to break this formation. If we break through this formation in the middle, then we can have an in to the rest of it. We can so you're playing a hypothetical way. where like, this is yeah. the union didn't like, is now in the position of having to retake ground that there's historically yes. supposed to have held. Yes. Yeah. I'd played on Culp's Hill before. Mm-hmm. I knew that the Southwest of Culp's Hill has a bit of forest that is really good defensive ground. Uh, that is that is that is really easy to fight in uh, for attackers. If attackers push onto Culp's Hill, there's a forest that separates. So there's a Culp's Hill. There's a big forest on top of the hill, and then there's a little clearing, and then there's a smaller forest in the southwest. They had artillery sat up in that little clearing and on that hill that were just peppering my troops. I knew that they were going to pepper my troops because I knew that someone else had failed to take Culp's Hill. And so I sent a detachment of, of solid fighters who I knew could spend the entire fucking thing distracting those artillery units in that entire section of the map, which isn't even technically part of the battle, which should not technically be part of the battle. I sent people over there and was like, you are going to distract them. And it won me the fucking fight because suddenly we were able to take every single victory point because an entire half of the map that should be providing constant artillery fire was totally shut down. And I knew I could do that because I knew that specific forest would provide the exact amount of cover I needed for crack troops to be able to hold out for an hour against totally fucked odds. Yep. And then I was like, ah, fuck. This is actually working well. I I do like this. Yep. Yeah, we I, didn't I, we didn't really talk about the speculative scenarios at all, which I think are a pretty good addition to the fact like if you play through if you like click the like play the battle thing, yeah. it'll send you depending on whether you win or lost to these like alternate universes of like, oh, this is how the battle changed, now this is what you would have to do to continue down the path or just how to realign the timeline, so to speak, where the mm-hmm. union wins. Um, uh, those were kind of, those are kind of neat that they, that they have that it's not just win loss and then nothing happens of it on the next scenario. It's like win loss and then like, Oh, well, here's the alternate history that you just found yourself in. Well, I think they're especially neat because like, I, I do think the first day of Gettysburg is fascinating in terms of scenarios. The next two days really are like, positional battles where like can the confederate like the confederates are sort of attacking in these prepared positions and it's kind of like uh like attacking little round top is not fun like your units move at a snail's <laughs> pace you can't maneuver it it's a nightmare um it's like not only is it hard but just like literally your troops are inert 
you cannot push them through that ground uh, to, to do their thing. But the alternate scenarios, like in a lot of ways, it's like they're more dynamic because they're sort of presupposing that those really like static battles didn't happen uh, and that you have battles occurring at like really different awkward angles compared to what you're used to. Um, which, yeah, they, they are fun. Uh, I think the alternate, like what if Lee didn't do Pickett's charge and instead Longstreet gets his wish and they bring the entire house up the valley uh, behind Cemetery Hill. It's really weird. It's like Bizarro Universe where it's like, wow, there's I'm just not attacking up a, a deadly ridge here. You're attacking into a deadly ball, but it's not a deadly ridge. And so <laughs> that's different and fun. But, yeah, I think those the alternate scenarios uh, are are really well done. And I do think kind of function to maybe uh, restore some of the dynamism that might be lacking in the later historical scenarios. Another thing that I found like kind of fascinating after we did our stream, I went back and tried to, you know, hold that hill. <laughs> uh, fucking what is it? McPherson's the very, like the very first one basically. Um, and a thing that I started to notice, like playing it off stream was like, they, there's actually like, and I think this is because they have the historical context. A lot of the reinforcements and um, you know, like you, when you start the thing, like everything is positioned already. Obviously, like they're they're in place to hold this hill. And turns out that place that they chose actually pretty well defended. If you just stand pat with that opening thing, yep. I feel like one of my big things was like I tried to get on a flank. I was like, you don't need to do that. The way that it like naturally happened, or even when when the re- reinforcements arrive, being like, okay, I'm going to take these reinforcements and send them this direction. It's like, no, you want those reinforcements to actually reinforce the line that by the point the reinforcements arrive is starting to shatter, but yes. it hasn't completely broken. Yes. and then they come right at the right time, and like I, you know. Especially for McPherson, specifically that scenario, I remember being like, oh, I'm like making very small adjustments here. I am like trying to make sure this line holds, but I'm not making huge flanks or sweeps. And I like only ever lost the hill for like the span of like a minute of game time before I was immediately able to take it back when the reinforcements hit. Right. Um, And it's like in other games, like your starting position is never that good right like the point is that part of the fun is being able to come up and like form those lines yourself but the game is like no actually here these lines are good you're just gonna have to manage them well at a certain point yeah no that's good that is a good starter scenario because yes it is very much like a you are can you learn the micromanagement side of this right a lot of later scenarios are very much like hey you actually got a few places you can send this entire brigade you need to be careful about where you do, but like you need to be decisive, right? Like you can't, you can't dilute your punch and just send regiment by regiment, like where, where you think they're most urgent. You do need to make a call about like what you're going to prioritize. But that first scenario is very much like, can you, uh, you know, what, what, what my colleague Troy calls like, can you, can you control the dance of units? Um, and that's kind of what that opening scenario, uh, serves as. Um, but I am I'm thrilled that people came around to it a little bit. The the people are starting to to get the pleasure at least of um of Sid, Sid Meier's Gettysburg. I, I do think I think you're right. It ends up, you know, Patrick, you sort of noted it ends up kind of being a forgotten game. I think genuinely a big part of it is it's one of the few from that period that doesn't get redistributed. 
Yeah. Like there's, you can't go and get it on, you know, good old games or whatever. You can't like, they have never reissued it. Um, you've got to find a disc somewhere. Um, or at least the impression Look, we're, on, we're, we're on a waypoint plus feed, like the hoops yeah. you have to jump through just to get like, to run older games these days, fan bases. And I think to some degree, this speaks to like it being forgotten is so many games that even haven't been redistributed are fairly easy. Thanks to like fan modifications to get running on a modern machine. Gettysburg's is, it's not impossible. It's not like a huge hurdle, but it's like, like (laughs) it took Rob some time. He had to jump into all of our machines to, you know, to help us out. Like it's a hurdle. And I think that speaks to like, you don't have a, a huge community making that easier because like those people who were doing it before, you know, well, any sort of decently sized community at this point has an installer. Hey, download the, download the community installer and it'll do all this stuff automatically. Gettysburg is like, dig up this forum post from this, (laughs) from this one guy in 2008 that explains how to apply this patch because it's weird. And like, that is the key. Uh, you have to dig up that old patch and dig up this old, like, ancient wisdom about applying the patch to a Windows 7 <laughs> machine. Um, otherwise, it just won't go. And that's and, and I think that, like, if this thing had had a proper reissue, uh, maybe it would have found uh, a bit more community. But I, but I do think I do think rather than it necessarily being forgotten, I think some of its ideas also did just get swept up in much more successful products. Like I think I like for me, I can draw a line between this and like Shogun total war. And from there you're into the entire total war series. Like I think that entire series owes a lot to Sid Meier's Gettysburg, despite the fact that it looks nothing like it at this point and behaves much more as a traditional RTS in a lot of ways. Um, I think, I think it's foundations are, are kind of here. Um, but that doesn't mean that people have been like, we need to make a new Sid Meier's Gettysburg. Instead, it's much more, I can't wait to see what new era uh, Total War is going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we will leave it there. Uh, There's one last thing. Yes. Okay. This is the okay, last thing for my, my, my computer game world yes. uh, excavation. Um, from the review of this, this will just, this will, this will speak deeply to our collective mm-hmm. experience in this game. About a very specific thing. <clears throat> so, does this mix of flexibility and playability in Sid Meier's version of the Civil War mean that I'll be removing Talonsoft's Battleground Gettysburg from my hard disk anytime soon? No. I still need if I want to construct my own what-if scenario. There's just no way to do this with Sid Meier's Gettysburg. Nor is Meier's design perfect. There are a few rough edges with the interface. For example... It's impossible to select an object near the edge of the screen, including the menus at the top, without scrolling the goddamn map. He didn't write goddamn, I added that. Turning off scrolling completely is a bigger problem. What the game needs is a key that holds down scrolling as long as the key is held down. And I just saw that and was like, hot damn, you're you're right. Uh, that is a problem in this game, because if you... <laughs> I did. I had turned down the uh, the scrolling of my mouse on a like on a hardware level through a window setting to just stop myself from hitting the top of the screen. because yeah. then I'll just yeah. be at the top. <laughs> that is, yep, that is very true. <laughs> the the sheer no. Okay, WASD map scroll. One of the greatest innovations <laughs> in, in human history. Well, yeah. 
just absolutely <laughs> never I, I'm a I'm a prolific edge scroller because I'm used to like StarCraft where I'm using all my my other hand for action True. commands. True. Mm-hmm. But the scroll, you have a fucking slider that says how fucking quick it goes, not and it's never a million miles an hour. <laughs> like, I don't need to get to the other side of the map with a flick, you know? <laughs> well, it just sounds like uh, you know, running this on modern machines, like you know, you're gonna have certain things that just run faster. Yeah. And like yeah. the game runs okay, but it's like that mm-hmm. map scroll is just like a turbo button. And yeah, it's like so I'm sure it's still scrolled obnoxiously in the original game, but at like a snail's pace. But like it was still annoying enough on, you know, whatever uh, you know, like Pentiums that you were running it on back then that it still made it into one of the definitive reviews of the game from that era. Never just... press the fast forward button. If you play this video game, do not press Oh, that was the my favorite part of the stream I did with Rob. We just started running scenarios in fast forward. It's it's Turbo. CPU speed locked. <laughs> and amazing. so if you press that shit. Well, and it goes the other way. If you go to slower mode, it just becomes glacial because it's just like multipliers of CPU speed. So it runs okay at normal, but then any tweak in any direction is just like either you're just like mired in quicksand (laughs) or the thing is just like rocketing past you like faster than the speed of thought. Okay, I have to show you one thing real quick. Well, mm-hmm. no, Gettysburg has made it as a community when they when there is a uh, tutorial on how to change the clock speed on a modern PC <laughs> oh in God. order to make it perfectly emulated. <laughs> Check out this box out from their review of Battleground Gettysburg, by the way, which is the game that Patrick and I played on stream, mm-hmm. the, the Talonsoft thing. Mm-hmm. I love this box out. Scenarios, files, and maps. When you load a save game or start a modem game in Battleground Gettysburg, it's important to know which map module corresponds to which files or scenario. Scenario title, first contact. File name, mr.scn. The map module is McPherson's Ridge. Great. It's just a list. It is just an index (laughs) of like, what are these file file names mean? Because I remember, like Patrick, when you and I... At one point, I wanted to like, okay, I'll just reload a scenario. And I opened a directory and I was like, I don't know what this is. Like, what mm-hmm. am I staring at? It's not, it's not clear. It, like, you basically had to choose correctly from this, from when you launch the game uh, to, to make it work. But it is so funny that like in, again, like this is early 1996, the game had come out in late 1995, uh, that like, someone's like, you know, it's going to be a sweet box out for this real Add a little pizzazz to this war game review, uh, an index of the scenario files that you'll find in your install directory. Bon appetit. Uh, it's also just like telling of the era. I don't know if Battleground Gettysburg has like true multiplayer in the way that like Gettysburg does. Sid Meier's Gettysburg does, but it obviously doesn't work in our current setup. But like cons in this in this review for Battleground Gettysburg is weak AI, sometimes confusing documentation, no scenario editor or play by email capability, which is just like, yeah, of course that, of course that would have been like a standard thing in war games of the era. And that of course that would be something that would start to get lost as we move, you know, to uh, uh, more real time formats that just wouldn't, wouldn't fit that. Um, Mm -hmm. But too funny. Too funny. All right. Uh, So with that, that is a wrap on Sid Meier's Gettysburg. Thanks to everyone who followed along with our streams. Uh, thanks to y'all for being open-minded and giving it a shot. Uh, as we wrap this Waypoint 101 up, I'll call everyone's attention one more time to our interview with Greg Furch, who was an artist on the game, on the main feed. 
and I should have an essay that we've alluded to a bit on the uh, on the website this week at waypoint.vice.com. Uh, so check it out. Um, I think we're going to have to reshuffle the order a little bit. We'll tell you it might be the thing that's coming up next. Thing. Yeah, thing. Natalie. So. Natalie is busy with her own. Natalie does not things. have time, surprisingly enough, for both System Shock games. Hey, congrats to uh, this is buried deep in a podcast, but congrats to uh, Natalie and uh, the game she's working on, part of the Tribeca Film Game Festival, um, uh, happening in, in June. So it's cool. They're part of a lineup of really cool games. But yes, that will, we're going to have to move things around. Unfortunately, that moves like Final Fantasy Tactics like a little earlier up in theory, <laughs> but like just announce that remaster square so we can kick that to the fall. So but yes, the thing is, is up next, I think. All thang. right. So I guess thang. 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 The thing. Uh yeah, man. I cannot I cannot imagine. It is so funny that Natalie pitched doing both system shock games. I'm never gonna stop laughing at that. They're both they're not enormous, but they're not small. Uh, no, they're all te- they're ten plus hour games. Yeah. Uh both. Magn- and that's kind of you know what you're doing. Uh which <laughs> System Shock One, not the case. Uh, no, trust me. Uh, but but anyway, yeah. So I think up next we've got the thing. Uh, but all our stuff with Gettysburg is either on the main feed or on the website. Uh, appreciate appreciate the look. Uh, appreciate the listen. Uh, and we'll be back next month with the thing. Till then, fuck capitalism. Fuck the lost cause. Go home. <laughs>